0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to uh, a great
1: week coming up, all kinds of good things that you and I have going on. We're going to be traveling the world. We're bringing 83 Weeks Live all over the place. I I don't know. I'm just really optimistic. I feel good about life.
0: Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun because we're doing something totally different. We're doing a watch along you've ever wanted to watch an old WCW pay-per-view with Eric Bischoff, this is your chance. We're going to watch sold out 2000. Interestingly enough, Eric wasn't there. Eric had been home for a handful of months and, uh, he was on the outside looking in here and what an interesting time it is for WCW. Vince Russo had also gone home. Okay. i going to break down all that from the newsletters, but this is going to be a different style, 83 weeks this week. So what we want you to do is go to your WWE network or fire it up. January 16th, 2000 WCW sold out 2000. And we'll watch this as a couple of wrestling fans. And, uh, this should be a fun idea, Eric. Well, but before we have everybody press play, we'll give everybody a minute to get set up. What was the feedback that you got from last week's show?
1: You know, I'm really getting a lot of a great, interesting feedback. Some of it, you know, is, is. A lot of it is very, very supportive. You know, everybody likes to take their shots and and disagree with either my position or yours or whatever. And that's cool. I appreciate that just as much as I appreciate compliments. So um, I love getting the feedback. Good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. But, you know, I think a lot of people um, recognize uh, Sold Out um, 98 as uh, probably one of the better pay-per-views that we've done, at least that's what, you know, the feedback that I was getting suggests, uh, but everybody's got a different take on it. You know, it's fun. And and I think people love going back and breaking these shows down and looking at what worked and what didn't work. And more importantly, what could have been, you know, that's, that's always the fun part of being a wrestling fan. Well,
0: 1999 was certainly a challenging year for WCW, a stark contrast to 1998 But 2000 is going to be a whole nother can of worms. And there's so much rumor and innuendo around this show. It'll be fun to sort of guess, because really that's what we're going to be doing as to what happened backstage, because you were hearing things through the grapevine, probably maybe you were seeing things in the torch or the observer, some of your friends were catching you up on their opinion. Uh, But things are uh, chaotic in WCW here when we get to January of 2000 to say the least, and. Join us for this roller coaster ride. I'm going to give you a quick countdown and you'll press play as a heads up. What we've done is we've let the disclaimer that would show you what the rating of the show would be. And maybe a little pre-roll ad from one of WWE's partners. And now the show is ready to start and we're at absolute zero, 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 zero. So we'll give you a countdown, tell you to press play, and then hopefully you've got your show muted and, uh, you'll be hearing us give you some alternate commentary i sold out 2000. Eric, are you ready? I am ready. All right. Three, two, one play. Boy, this old open here, does this just painful memories for you?
1: It is. This is the, uh, the handiwork of a, a guy by the name of Jay Hassman with the support of my legal counterpart in Turner or in WCW Nick Lambros. And that's what happens when you put an attorney And you assign an attorney to anything that has anything to do with creative. No offense, Nick. I love you. You're a good dude. Miss you. But your creative instincts sucked.
0: So this is uh, an interesting time for WCW because, well, a lot of people have the injury bug. Concussions abound. Uh, At the most recent pay-per-view, Goldberg kicked Bret Hart's head off uh, into the third row. He's concussed and not going to be available for this show. And at a thunder right after that is when Goldberg gets frustrated and punches his arm through a limo and really, really hurts himself. A pretty scary situation. I know you weren't there, but what did you hear about the, uh, the Goldberg limo incident on your end?
1: You know, I I really wasn't in contact with anybody. Uh, Hulk and I would talk, you know, once or twice a week. And even when we talked, we weren't really talking necessarily about what was going on at WCW. So I I really didn't get a lot of input. You know, I was kind of persona non grata. I think people, because it was such a politically charged, you know, era uh, or time, that people were just, and they weren't sure, you know, I wasn't really fired. They knew I was still floating around out there. They saw a lot of changes internally and, you know, professional wrestling, particularly WCW, who had inherently been a very hyper-political environment. um, I think everybody was afraid (laughs) to reach out there. We just got to look at Bill Goldberg uh, nailing Bret Hart.
0: You know, what's crazy is, you know, there's been so many maneuvers that we've Talked about here, and of course we've watched together. That really doesn't look like that devastating of a kick, but man, you just never know. And and then how about this, Jimmy Superfly Snuka style Benoit right off the top. You see Snuka there on the ground, but what happens is uh, Jarrett's head ricochets off the canvas uh, during this match here with Superfly Snuka. And he suffers a concussion just as Brett did. So that was originally supposed to be a, a big part of the world championship uh, or the world, uh, the world title picture here. They've called an audible. So instead, your main event is going to be Sid and Chris Benoit are going to crown a new champion here because both Bret Hart and Jeff Jarrett are sidelined. Is that just like worst case scenario for anybody trying to put together a pay-per-view, Eric, that you're too main event players, your two championship match constituents are out on short-term notice?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's one of the inevitable um, factors in in sports entertainment, professional wrestling, particularly when you think about all the time that you had previously invested in the buildup, the marketing, the promotion, everything that you do. And even in 2000, you know, when WCW and even WWF or WWE were still dependent upon your traditional pay per view providers, um, you had to get your collateral materials to them 90, 120 days in advance. So once you promoted your main event, once you put all your eggs in that basket, it was really hard. And this was before social media, you know, was really uh, before Twitter and Facebook and all of that. So, I mean, today you have time to recover. You can get the word out. You can do press releases and social media will probably um, help you uh, adjust on the fly in situations like this. But back then we didn't have that. So, yeah, it was the worst possible situ- situation, and particularly, you know, in 2000 when arguably, you know, other than Goldberg, you know, nobody was really over. You know, there was no, there was no Hail Mary pass. You know, your, your choices were bad or worse um, in terms of, you know, replacing that main event. Not this is, that the, by the way, not that this main event was stellar to begin with. Jeff Jarrett was uh, hardly, I don't think anybody ever considered him a main eventer uh, other than Vince Russo. Um, but, you know, he was positioned the way he was positioned.
0: This is going to be, uh, they're running through the card here, and they're sort of giving you the rundown of everything that you're going to see tonight. And, uh, and now backstage, we've got Crowbar and David Flair. Uh, attacking vampiro, but I feel bad for David when I see him in some of these old segments, because he was really in a, in a no win situation here in WCW for most of his run. Wouldn't you agree?
1: No, I would agree. He was thrown out there too, too fast. Um, his instincts weren't there. Even that backstage that we just got to look at with crowbar. You know, if you look at the punches, uh, that David was throwing, They look more like open-hand slaps. They look like something you'd see in a schoolyard uh, as opposed to, you know, a vicious attack by two badasses backstage. Uh, And it's just, look, it's not really a criticism. It's just a fact of life. I have no musical instincts whatsoever. I don't care who would ever try to teach me how to play music, play guitar. I've been trying to learn how to play guitar almost my entire life, and I just suck at it. There's no hope. It's over. Because I just don't have that, talent or that instinct in my dna and i don't think you know being aggressive and being physical is necessarily part of david flair's dna and it's not a criticism it's just a fact of life
0: man i can't believe that we've got some of these matches that we've got they're running down that we're going to see medusa in oklahoma in a cruiserweight match and then a shoot fight rules match with tank abbott and jerry flynn i mean this is uh this is quite the card here. and, and
1: you This started- is Vince Russo, and I know Vince Russo, we're going to talk about this later, but this is Russo. Um, he, he had only been with the company for 90 days and had already had his you know, probably five-time-a-year meltdown where he becomes so emotionally distraught that he can't function and has to go home and put himself in a dark room with all the windows closed and the, the drapes drawn and uh, he needs to somehow recover from his funk. Uh, but everything that you see here is a result or a manifestation of the creative that was put in place by Russo prior to him, you know, melting down and going home like a baby. Um, so that's what you're seeing here. This is this is Vince Russo, even though he's not in the building, even though he he, he he packed up his shit and went home and cried to his wife. This is Vince Russo. And the talent that you're seeing on the show reflects the talent that Vince Russo thought was over. And nothing against the guys. Look, the talent, whether it's guys like Crowbar who, by the way, went on you know to become a chiropractor, and <laughs> I, I was reading a, a story the other day online about how crowbar when he was in ECW, you know everybody was busting his balls because he'd sit in the arena and study and read and, and prepare for life after wrestling, Well, a lot of these guys didn't. This was their life, and they were taking advantage of the opportunity that they were given. I don't mean to disparage the talent themselves. Anybody would do that, myself included, meaning be a part of this pay-per-view when you really weren't qualified to, unlike this match here. you got Dean Malenko and Billy Kidman. I'm actually anxious to see this match. This is probably going to be the standout match on the card, would be my guess. By the way, Conrad, I haven't seen this yet. Normally, when you and I do a show, we know we're going to do an episode. I make great pains to to watch it and make notes, and sometimes I watch them twice. Once with the audio on, once with the audio off. In this case, I wanted to see it fresh. I didn't want to have preconceived ideas because of my feelings about Russo and what was going on in general during this time period. So this is all new to me.
0: Well, that's good news. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people who are watching this are probably watching for the first time. Um, This match that we're watching right now was described as two minutes and 36 seconds of a total screw up where they said originally The ropes were to be taken down for this match, but I guess they decided against it. Uh, but the rules remain. The first man to leave the ring and hit the floor loses.
1: Yeah. I don't I don't get that. But the match itself, at least this far into it, I mean, you're looking at two of the best in the business at this point, Billy and, and Dean, um, especially if you like this style of wrestling, which I particularly do. This is kind of my style of, this is the kind of match that I would really enjoy watching just as a fan. If I had never been in the business, you've got a, a good balance of amateur wrestling in there. Um, uh, along with some great athleticism and tough and toughness. I mean, look at Billy going after Dean. I mean, it's believable.
0: So here's what happens here. According to the newsletters, Dean is going to have what's described as a mental lapse and, get out of the ring and, and as a result, Tony Schiavone is going to announce, well, that was, that's it. That's the end. The match is over. And, uh, yeah, they're going to try to just step back in the ring and act like nothing's wrong and everything's okay. But Charles Robinson is going to get, there you go right there. Match over.
1: I wonder what happened there. I'd love to talk to Dean about that or Billy, you know, Dean, obviously, but I I really wonder what, what happened there. If he got his bell rung, if he just,
0: it's probably just it. instinct, you know, you're trying to sell and, uh, you just, you just took a bunch of shots, you know, you had so a guy
1: Bonnie that fucked it up. Not, not, not necessarily, uh, Dean,
0: right? No, the rules of the match are when you go to the floor, the match is over. So the match oh, is over. Okay.
1: so Dean forgot that part.
0: Dean. And it and, and even said in the newsletter, this was not a protest or anything. And he felt real bad about it afterwards. Uh, They went back in the ring like nothing happened. Shivani was making the point over and over. And you could see referee Charles Robinson get the word. The match had already been declared over by the announcers. And he reluctantly rang the bell and declared Kidman the winner. So super weird, but originally there weren't even supposed to be ropes up for this. And it was just supposed to be a more traditional wrestling match. But Dean accidentally eliminates himself, just a mental lapse from one of the best and you almost never hear about Dean Malenko. I've never heard of Dean Malenko screwing anything up, in fact, until maybe this.
1: No, that really, really, really surprises me. And I'm not making excuses for Dean. I don't want to suggest that Dean and I are close friends because we're not. He's a guy that I have a ton of respect for. I, I'm f- we're friendly with each other when we see each other once or twice a year, once every other year. He's a great, great guy. But I don't really know. You know. I don't know him on a real personal level. Uh, But I can only imagine how pissed off he was at himself. Oh, look, it's a cage. Imagine that.
0: So let's talk about that. I mean, this does feel a little bit like Murphy's law here. Does it not? Where, you know, uh, you're supposed to have Benoit and Jeff Jarrett and Jeff Jarrett's concussed because of Jimmy Snuka and you're supposed to have Sid and Brett and Brett's concussed because of Goldberg and Goldberg can't be here because he put his forearm through uh a limo and really hurt himself so the whole pay-per-view is turned upside down and then in your opening match we flubbed the finish two minutes in it's just
1: it's yeah, it, it too it bad because this match had the potential of being and you know we've talked about this before how i always i loved when i could whenever possible to start this this show off on. i firmly believe that in a pay-per-view if you could started off great, make that great first impression, set the tone for the rest of the pay-per-view, make sure your second act, you know, some of the stuff that you had in the middle was meaningful and had a lot of meat on the bone, and then leave the fans with a finish that made them happy and left them standing, 70% of the time you'd hit home. Look at this Fakakta shit. This is the part, I mean, this whole just goth, I mean, who is this freaky bitch? You know, sitting there hugging her stuffed doll. That's
0: Who's Daphne. It? You know who Daphne is. Come on.
1: Oh, Daphne. That's right. That's right. C- completely horrible piece of talent, by the
0: way. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where's that coming from?
1: Uh, just it is. I'm just. It is what it is. As a talent, I, she's probably a sweet person. I have nothing against her personally. That character. Let's just talk about that character that was created for her, or she created, was fucking horrible. It didn't generate any kind of emotion that made you either want to cheer her or boo her. She was just obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious, and there's no money in that.
0: I, uh, I think some of our listeners would disagree. I can't say I was a I huge Daphne fan, but
1: I, I disagree with with a lot of things. It doesn't really matter. It's just my opinion. That's what we're here to talk about. Doesn't mean I'm right.
0: What do you think about the, uh, association with the misfits?
1: I think the whole thing was just, it, it, look, I think there was, there was a place I got to be careful here. I get overly emotional about some of the stuff, um, Scott Hudson that we're looking at, by the way, uh, interviewing Vampiro, one of the most underrated um, announcers, I think, in the industry, should have had a much bigger opportunity. Here's Chono. And I'm I'm sure Chono, knowing him the way I did, uh, is probably thinking, what in the fuck am I into here? I mean, this was so antithetical to the way the Japanese did business. It was crazy, but whatever.
0: Masahiro Chono here looks like a character from... uh uh, Street Fighter video game or something.
1: Yeah, he looks like something out of a Japanese yakuza movie. You know, he looks—he's a cool character. I'm anxious to see him when I get to Japan uh, in February. Really looking forward to that.
0: Hey, here's how much of a redneck I am. You know, I've always thought it was pronounced yakuza, but the way you said it with such confidence, there, I'm starting to second guess myself.
1: Yeah, Japanese. Typically, when you look at a Japanese word, there's no. You know, in in English, we tend to uh, emphasize syllables. Yakuza, you know Huntsville. In Japanese, the, it's just they treat every syllable the same, so it's usually like in in English, people say, "Oh, you're going to Osaka, Japan," and in Japanese, it would be Osaka. So there's no emphasis on syllables, but that's just me. No, no need to be you know perfect when we're trying to use foreign languages. So- but going back to this this gimmick here. Um, I think the whole gimmick, for me it was very uh, I, I just didn't like it. But again, that's my taste. I, you know, I don't like Brussels sprouts either. Some people love Brussels sprouts. Does doesn't fucking matter. I,
0: Listen, the I, I... Problem I
1: had The problem I had with this is that it's such a a a narrowly focused kind of an idea, meaning there was a fringe part of the audience that would dig this. There's no question about that. And I'm gonna hear from every one of those motherfuckers on social media. They're going to be burying me for what I'm saying right now and about to say. But, you know, they represent maybe 2% of the audience or 4% of the audience, whereas the other 98% of the audience that you really depend on to drive revenue and interest in your product, you know, just don't relate to it. It's it's not that the talent wasn't good or great, perhaps. It wasn't that they didn't have tons of potential. It's just that that was such a narrowly focused gimmick um, that it, it... it missed the mark, and it got way too much attention on on our pro, on WCW programming for what it was really worth. And there wasn't really anybody in that that, that click, if you will, that could uh, – sorry, Kevin and Sean – that could, you know, really, really take it to another level. Now, Vampiro was good. You know, there's no doubt about it. I didn't dig his gimmick, but, you know, he was good. But that was kind of about it. Crowbar was weak as hell david we've talked about um completely out of his element uh and the whole thing just i don't know just stunk up every room it was in as far as i'm concerned
0: well first of all let's circle back i, I won't sit here and let you disparage the good damn name of brussels sprouts on the show
1: you know and I, I honestly i can i can find a way to cook brussels sprouts where i could say i moderately enjoy them but generally speaking most of the time the way they're prepared they tend to be a little bit bitter and, and not that great so I, I didn't mean to pick up brussels sprouts either brussels sprouts are good for you they're a healthy food so uh um, no no offense to the brussels sprout association of america
0: yeah the brussels sprout community calm down so hey uh vampiro i'm interested in your take here because you're saying you know that you uh you didn't really get it you weren't really a fan um where did you follow The Undertaker?
1: Well, keep in mind, Undertaker, you know, and I'm, I am not a wrestling expert. I don't have a, you know, entire curated collection of facts, figures, timelines, and character transitions with all the talents in the world. That was a sweet reverse sidekick right there by Vampiro. We didn't get a good look at it because the camera angle was not where it should have been for it. But I could tell by the way he executed just from what I could see that it was a sweet one. Um, You know, Undertaker went through a couple different transitions in his character. You know, he went from being the the dark, gloomy Undertaker that we, I guess, know today. And then he was the American badass. And I'm not really sure when those transitions occurred. Um, As you've heard me say before, again, you know, I want to really emphasize here. Just because I share with people what my taste is as a wrestling fan, I don't want to infer, suggest, imply, or any other way make people believe that I think I'm absolutely right in the fact that they feel differently about a character or a type of character uh, that they're wrong. Everybody likes something different in, in professional wrestling, and that's one of the reasons why... It's sustained itself and been so successful over the years. It's like a really great buffet and everybody can find something at that buffet that they, they really enjoy. And they keep going back and this is fucking hideous. David Flair getting his shirt ripped off. There was absolutely no reason to do this. I don't get it. Oh, he's going to chop up because he's David Flair. I guess that makes technical sense, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, his Vern guy would say, Jesus Jesus, Eric. God damn, Jesus. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast part of the believe network just search b l e a v on youtube or wherever you listen anyway
0: let me uh, go ahead and tell you that this pay-per-view in the wrestling observer reader poll got 15.7% thumbs up 32.9% thumbs down and 51.4% thumbs in the middle they would say the worst match was the one we opened with kidman and malenko the best match is diamond Dallas page and buff Bagwell, which is probably the first time buff Bagwell has won a wrestling observer reader poll.
1: Yeah. But you also have to kind of look, I mean the best match on the car, that's like saying, you know, the, <laughs> the, the one plate of French fries that was served, you know, at your local restaurant that wasn't moldy. Um, was the best plate of French fries ever served in that restaurant. I mean, it's look at the standard by which you're being judged, you know, being judged as the best match on this card is probably not going to be something you're going to put in a
0: resume. Let's also mention that despite the, uh, the show, not being awesome, it's a sold out house, uh, 14,132 fans. But here's, what's interesting about that. Only 7,300 fans actually paid. So we're at capacity, but only half paid, but it's still a decent gate, $238,000, another 45 grand in merchandise. But here's where it starts to go downhill, a 0.25 buy rate, which is the lowest in company history.
1: What does that tell you? You're not only a fan. I mean, you're an analyst at this point. You've been looking at enough facts, figures, history, research, data, trends. What does that tell you? If you were an analyst, if WCW would have hired you right now in January of 2000, and you would have looked at those stats after the pay-per-view, how would you have approached it as a fan? Uh, And all of a sudden now you've got the pencil, you've got complete control. What's the first thing you would have done?
0: I think I would do what WCW did this time to hit the reset button. And that's what happens here because – the, the politics leading into this pay-per-view really came to a boil. If you believe what you read in the torch and the observer, uh, it was described as a basic battle for power between Vince Russo and Kevin Sullivan. It's not a healthy situation because there is a transparent quote unquote, good cop, bad cop game going on where Vince Russo's boss, Bill Bush is telling him to his face. That he has his full support and he has six to 12 months to prove himself before he will be heavily scrutinized. Meanwhile, JJ Dillon, who's Bush's right-hand man is openly working against Russo and siding with Kevin Sullivan. He is actually said to be hostile towards Russo at booking meetings. Dillon would question virtually everything. Russo says the growing belief within WCW is that Bush Dillon and Gary juster have all, all already lost confidence in Russo, but because they hired him, they need to try to make their decision look good. And they uh, are said to be tired of his excuses regarding standards and practices. And Russo either seriously believes the only major flaw in his booking is the limitations placed on him by standards and practices, or he is using them as a scapegoat for his shaken confidence.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things going on there and I know we don't want to go too far into the weeds. We just want to watch his show as fans, but I think in order to kind of reflect back on this and understand the why of it all in the politics that were going on, you've got to start at the beginning. Bill Bush, Sharon Sadello, Gary Juster were three of the most slimy individual individuals in WCW at that point. Sharon Sadello in particular, Gary Juster in particular, had always been political animals. Gary Juster probably of everybody in WCW, he was Jim Barnett's boy. He was Jim Barnett's. Jim Barnett was his mentor. Gary Juster lived and loved the politics of it all. And if it wasn't for the politics and his ability to leverage his relationship with Jim Barnett um, in the early part of his career at WCW, he wouldn't have lasted a week because he had no real particular talent um, th- that was really an asset. But politically, he was really dangerous. So was Sharon Cedella and Bill Bush because he smelled an opportunity to advance his career those three people in 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 combination were really the ones that kind of orchestrated a lot of what was going on with me in particular back in September by the time that they, they and they, they were successful you know i was on a fucking plane i'm flying out to wyoming i'm fishing for trout i'm you know i'm out of the picture and they finally had what they wanted they had control they had the ball but they were so underqualified And and just completely out of their element, they didn't know what to do. You know, the the decision to hire, you know, Vince Russo in the first place, that's Bill Bush because Bill, you know, was so – Bill knew he didn't have a creative bone in his body. And that's not a knock. You know, he was an accountant. He was a finance guy. Typically finance guys are, you know, left brain kind of people, you know, they're analytical, they're they're, they're linear, they're, they're great with numbers and logic and shit like that. Creatively, uh-uh, it's not happening. Have you ever seen an accountant dress? I rest my case. It is what it is. They're accountants. They're not creative people. But Bill wanted to be that guy. And he saw an opportunity because he saw where I was going. He saw where my head was at. He knew I was, you know, standing on a cliff and just about ready to jump. And he took advantage of that. He and Sharon uh, and Gary Jester, you know, in combination. Uh, Read about it in Guy Evans' Nitro book, If You Don't Believe Me, you know, take a look at that book and it goes into great detail but once they got there that's my point once they finally got there they were so ill-equipped to handle it all and certainly dealing with Vince Russo especially since they thought they hired the guy that created Stone Cold Steve Austin that created the rock that created the Attitude Era it was the only reason why WWF was able to come back and regain their number one position that was the line of bullshit that Vince Russo sold Brad Siegel and Bill Bush and they bought it because they were were desperate, they didn't know any better. Now they're in the fire with this dude, and they don't know what to do. They're completely melting down. JJ Dylan, you talk about an overrated, unaccomplished, oh. just piece of furniture. That's all JJ Dylan ever was was a piece of furniture. He was a piece of furniture in the, in, in the Four Horsemen. He was a manager. Eh. He didn't really add much to the equation. In my opinion, Ric Flair may feel differently. Other people may feel differently who were actually there and a part of it. <clears throat> and that's cool. It's their opinion. I have mine. But I can tell you, you know, when I hired him, I hired him out of empathy. And and because of a great, you know, recommendation by, by Kevin Nash, because honestly, I felt a I don't want to say responsibility, but I, empathy is the best way to say it. You know, he had kids that were, you know, needed a little extra attention, and he was in a bad position. And he had spent his entire career in the professional wrestling business. When you have kids and you have a family and you have obligations, you can't just, you know, well, let's say I've been in wrestling for twenty years now. I think I'm going to go be a brain surgeon. It's hard to make that transition. And I wanted to try to give him an opportunity to transition into WCW. And be able to take care of his family. If he had any skill sets at all, I determined to hire him and find out what they were. The problem with J.J. is I hired him and found out he had no skill sets. He was just there. He was like a really, he was like a potted plant that you really see in the office every day. And you don't really want to not see it, but you really don't have to pay too much attention to it either. That was J.J. Dillon.
0: Man, you really have a hard on for JJ, but uh, it's not surprising I That's because I know that
1: he's a lion scumbag piece of shit. But other than that, no, I
0: have, I have a problem. Hey, here's mean Gene in the back interviewing Tony Mavalove. This gang of, uh, Italians, this is, uh, like right out of a mobster movie here, is it not?
1: It's right out of a mobster cartoon. Um, and again, this was in this, I don't mean this to sound like a, 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 a knock on Russo but you know he he loved this New York Bronx Italian kind of character and there's nothing wrong with that by the way i think the characters were kind of cool for me at this time in wrestling i think they were a little over the top in terms of their character they they, they were almost a parody of themselves to a certain degree i think if they would have toned that down just a little bit um, so it wasn't such a parody. It would have been more interesting as characters. But again, this was, that was, you know, again, not good, not bad, completely objective point of view here. That was a, you know, Russo loved that East Coast, New York kind of Italian character, because that's what, you know, he grew up around it. And it's what he related to.
0: We're uh, going to go ahead and set up Big Vito and Johnny the Bull taking on Ryan and Don Harris I should mention that Vampiro wound up winning that three-way over David Flair and Crowbar. David Flair and Crowbar worked together most of the match. And then of course, at the end, uh, they both had an issue with who was going to win. And, uh, as they started to divide, Vampiro found a way to get the win. He pinned David Flair and, uh, star and a quarter is the rating in the newsletter. What did, uh, what'd you think of that match? Uh, It was sort of background noise for you shitting on. Uh, My great close personal friend, J.J. Dillon. But what do you think?
1: Uh, You know, I think the match from a technical point of view, given what it was and the characters in it, was pretty decent. I I think Vampiro was a great performer in in many respects. Very athletic. I loved a lot of his offense. Um, His offense was believable to me. He, He sold very well. So I think from a technical point of view, I I I think the match was was better than g- good. You know, I don't think it was great, but I think it was it was more than good. Somewhere in between. Um, again, it's just you know, it's the characters really that just kind of leaves me a little bit um, less than enthusiastic about it. But not technically, not what I saw in the match.
0: We were talking a minute ago before we got sidetracked on on J Dillon about you know how things were were split now and there's sort of a a kevin sullivan camp and there is a a vince russo camp terry taylor who uh, was helped um coming back into the company by two advocates both kevin sullivan and vince russo now appears to be reading the tea leaves and siding with kevin sullivan but kevin nash is not backing either one of these guys he realizes that he may have a shot here politically, so he's not aligning himself anywhere. And he is, uh, bringing up the fact that he's always had to answer to somebody, whether it was Hulk Hogan or Eric Bischoff or whoever. And maybe there's an opportunity for him to do something here. Um, Meltzer would report some interesting facts about how things were going under Russo. The average attendance dropped by 900 people per show, and the average merch spend from each buyer dropped from $10 per head to $4 per head. And pay per view buy rates went from 0.52 to 0.26. I don't know that that's necessarily fair. And uh, I know you're going to take issue.
1: Why why do you say that?
0: Well, we're only three months in. Like, you know, if we looked at anything just three months in, is that really enough time? I mean, Obviously, WCW, the the way he inherited it, was not riding high. You you guys lost $10 million in 1999, depending on who you believe. But the observer in the—
1: we've got to be careful. Let's stay away from the financial side because, in fairness, especially after reading Guy's book, who goes into great detail in interviews with guys like Dick Cheatham and uh, Greg Pence and others who were a part of Turner Finance, not WCW, Turner Finance, those numbers were bogus. They were bullshit numbers, but I think it is fair to look at ratings. And I agree with you. If there was a consistent rating decline in the three month period prior to Russo taking over that were consistent with the, with the decline while he was, while we're looking at his three month tenure, then I think that's a fair observation. But if for example, the average ratings were a three, uh, in the months prior to Russo coming in. And then during that three month window, we measure ratings and they are less or revenue or, you know, house show attendance or whatever you want to say, then I think you can pin it on him. But if, if you, but to your point, if they were on a steady and consistent decline prior to his arrival, then I think it would be unfair to, to nail him with it.
0: Well, they were, I mean, the reality is the iceberg had already hit the boat and, and, They go to the back of the ship and they say, Hey Vince, do you want to try to pull the nose up on the Titanic here? I mean, fuck, it's already going down. I mean, it's not like he inherited a product that was riding high. It is a product that is declining. And you know, although I know you want to stay away from the, the financial end, we're not setting this as fact. Both Meltzer and Keller say that WCW lost ten million dollars in '99. They both wind but, up but on the same but number. But here's
1: the deal: I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm just not gonna let that go. And I know that you know you're friends with Dave Meltzer. I don't know what your relationship is with Keller, but the fact that they reported it doesn't mean a fucking thing because it wasn't true. They didn't know. They had no idea what was true and what wasn't true. Well, the, the the numbers the the people that were actually there who actually worked in the finance department, dispute that. Here's, so here's what I will I really say. What, I don't really care what they say. It doesn't mean anything. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Dave Meltzer, you know, with his big news announcement about Ronda Rossi the other day, it just wasn't true.
0: Oh, no, let's, the, let's he, not he, get sidebarred on that. Let's instead. Okay. <laughs> well, well, because it, we'll talk about that another time, maybe on Patreon. Oh. That's a fight for another day. Here, here's what I do know. When you've got a business person who says, no, those numbers aren't right. But then when I say, well, what are the right numbers? And they say, I don't know. It's not a very effective business person. Business people should know their numbers or they shouldn't be in business. And you yourself don't know the numbers. So until you have a number that you can say, no, we didn't lose 10. We lost four. And here's why.
1: Do your research, God, do your research. I'll take the criticism all day long. Nobody knew what the fucking numbers were because the numbers were manipulated by Turner Finance. And the people in Turner Finance will attest to that. So nobody knew the numbers. We didn't control our numbers. We were being hit with expenses and allocations that we didn't even know where the fuck they came from.
0: No one's so, arguing any of that, but here's what I am saying. You were spending more money than you were bringing in. Is that debatable?
1: No.
0: Okay. And, and, and so that that's where they are. And and there's lots of little uh, instances that are written about in the newsletter about flying guys in here or there, but those type of mistakes, while they certainly add up, it doesn't necessarily result in the single biggest loss in wrestling history for one year for a wrestling company, which is what the narrative was for WCW at the time, right or wrong. People were saying nobody's ever lost this much money in a year before. And so as a result, they're hitting the panic button. So Russo was really in a tough spot, uh, you know, from the beginning, it's not like he inherited the NWO at the top because Eric was burned out. No, WCW was struggling a little bit, not just creatively, but financially things were not as good as they once were. Maybe deals were made when they were at the, the top of the curve and now they're not. And now they've got to honor those, but the revenues aren't there and you're outspending what you're generating. And, and so everybody's sort of panicked and they're looking for a solution. And WCW decides rather quickly, uh, Vince Russo is not that solution. But
1: one Uh, of they they they, WCW realized, and 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 I agree with everything that you just said. You know, we'll argue and debate some of the facts and some of the figures and what was really going on behind the scenes, and that is a more nuanced, difficult thing to discuss because none of us really know the truth. But you know, I think with Russo, you know, number one, he came in, he oversold himself. He he actually believed that if it were not for him. There would have never been an attitude Era, so called Steve Austin, Vince McMahon matchup, all that stuff. You know, he, he took credit for all of that. I know he did. I listened to him talk. All right. He can say whatever he wants and he can go back and re-qualify some of the things that he said, but I've heard the words out of his mouth. And and so have others. But what happened is, number one, Bill Bush and company um, were desperate. They made a desperate decision in a desperate period much because of the things that you just talked about. They were desperate. Bill Bill Bush didn't have a fucking clue what he was doing. He, he was a fish completely out of water. And if you'd ever met or had a conversation with Bill Bush, you would know exactly what I mean without any further discussion. So not only was the guy who was, you know, theoretically running the company, Bill Bush, completely out of his element without any, any semblance of a clue. He hires... Vince Russo, who is not really that much better than Bill Bush. You know, Vince had a ton Russo had a ton of ideas. He thought highly of himself. He had all these things that he wanted to do, as we're seeing here. But, you know, Russo didn't have a plan. You know, if if Russo would have come in and 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 Knowing WCW the way I knew them then and the people that were involved, if Russo would have come in and said, look, we're going to spend the next 90 days doing this, and then we're going to spend the following 90 days doing this. And there would have been a plan. Not that the plans don't change, not that you don't have to adapt, but you have to have some sense of a plan in order to make anything successful. Russo didn't do that. His whole approach to life was Crash TV. And that's why they wanted to replace him so quickly. Because when you look at numbers, and whether it was his Russo's fault or not, you know, somebody on the executive side of the equation is going to say, okay, all right, things are continuing to suck. Russo, what's your plan? Well, gee, bro, 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 I'm going to get these guys, did mama look to come in here where, and Daphne, she's going to fucking scream and yell. And, oh, well. you know, that, that was the extent of his plan was getting overly passionate about angles and spots. Right. And 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 when you asked him, yeah, but where does it go? It would be looking like it would be it, it'd be like, you know, looking at Bambi after somebody just hit Bambi's mother with a car. It was just deer in the headlights. It was baby deer in the headlights.
0: I do want to deer- mention that the right or wrong. And I'm not going to dispute anything you just said. You were there for some booking stuff y'all did together at both WCW and TNA. So you certainly know him much better than I, but even if he had a plan, if it included Bill Goldberg or Bret Hart, I mean, there's so many curveballs here where it's really your top money guys and they're not, they're not here. I mean, so even if you had a plan, those plans have to change and, and the result is, always not as good so
1: yeah but you're talking about and you're talking about this particular pay-per-view and i would i would i would absolutely support you in that position you're absolutely right you know this particular pay-per-view because your top guys are out it's going to be what it's going to be but that has nothing to do with what we're looking at right now that has nothing to do with the two or three months prior to this event None of that stuff was a factor in the overall abysmal failure. That was the Russo experiment in WCW.
0: Well, in fairness, you know, we're talking about September, October, and come December, you know, both Goldberg and Brett are gone. So it it, it did happen. I mean, we're only three months in, and, and two months in is when that happened. So either way, it's, it's, a, it's a no-win situation, WCW, a lot of almost no good news but one great piece of news is we saw the debut of Stacy Keebler. Can we just agree for a minute that she's the best thing that happened to WCW in the year 2000?
1: I, I would I would second that emotion my brother. And let me just say in and I know you, no one's going to expect me to say this. Even if Vince Russo was better than he's convinced himself and others that he was at this time, even if he would have been You know, Vince McMahon, you know, times 10. If he would have had a little bit of Steven Spielberg in him, it wouldn't have mattered. By the time this event took place, what we're watching, people within Turner Broadcasting had already made up their mind long before this that they didn't want WCW to exist. (sighs) It doesn't, it's, it's, As much as I despise Russo because I I know him, you know, there there are two Vince Russo's. There's the passionate, lovable, sympathetic, almost kind of character that can convince you, you know, you're standing out in the rain if you're on a desert island because he's that good. Um, There is that guy. And that's why I ended up working with him twice after I know I got screwed by him. Because I wanted to believe him. I wanted to like him. I wanted to get along with him. And that's the charm that he has. He's a very charming guy. Um, There's just nothing under the hood. But even if there was a ton under the hood, it wouldn't have mattered. This company was going to go away. Time Warner wanted nothing to do with professional wrestling. Guys like Joe Yuva. Um, and Steve Heyer, the real decision makers at this time wanted nothing to do with professional wrestling. Brad Siegel, people over at TBS, TNT didn't want anything to do with professional wrestling. The only reason they ever touched it was because of Ted Turner. And at this time in 2000, Ted Turner was silently being shuffled off into a corner and had no stroke now, he gave it up. He made that choice, but that's what was really going on at this time. And now when you're looking at Ed Ferrara, I mean, this is, again, this is Vince Russo. This isn't, you know, this isn't Bill Bush. This isn't J.G. Dillon. This isn't Kevin Sullivan. This is Vince Russo. You're looking at it.
0: I, I, I was really wondering how you're having such a serious conversation when you've got Ed out here in a single. I'm trying
1: to look at it trying. I'm really, I'm trying. I'm actually, I'm talking to you and I'm looking at my laptop and I can only see him talking on the mic out of the corner of my eye. And here's a cool, here's what's interesting. Ed is a really talented dude. I like Ed. He should have never been in this position. He should have never subjected himself to this, but you know, you could sit down and have a really, what I consider an analytical, creative conversation with him. You could really break down story and character you know unlike russo russo was again kind of like he would he was more of a, a spontaneous you know add type of a creative guy uh if you want to call it creative whereas you know ed had more of a a structured approach and a formulaic approach to to creative so i i i enjoyed working with Ed the little bit that i worked with him
0: so he's out here in a cowboy hat uh talking like JR, wearing a cruiserweight belt, wearing a singlet that says Oklahoma, but it's in the WWE style font, and it's got the little red swoosh underneath it, just like their logo at the time. And he brought out a bottle of JR's barbecue sauce. And out comes Medusa.
1: And what was that natural girl's name? Fire?
0: Uh yeah, I think that's right.
1: Oh, deuce is getting naked oh no she's not she's just coming to the ring in her gimmick i like medusa have you met her do you know her
0: yeah she was at starcast she's a great person
1: she i really dig her she's fun to hang with
0: she uh she did ruin my life a little though how's that she brought her puppy to starcast and uh brought it to a meeting that we had and my wife was there and now i have that exact same breed puppy.
1: Ah, there you go.
0: Shitting all over my house every day. That's what puppies do, man. Yeah, I blame Medusa for that. So I'm hoping Oklahoma, you know, can take care of her here. I guess while we're uh while we're talking about that, we should talk about how Ed Ferrara maybe got this job. You know what,
1: as I'm looking at this, Conrad? Ed Ferrara, <laughs> as I'm looking at <laughs> Medusa trying to keep her pants on—that's pretty funny. Um, Ed did a pretty good job here. You know, I hate it. I hate the match. I hate the whole Oklahoma thing. I hate making fun of Jim Ross. I hate all of it, that aspect of it. But in terms of what happened in the ring, for what it was and what it was intended to be, I—I I think this was probably, in terms of execution, a seven or an eight. Again, I'm not putting over the idea. I think the idea sucked. But I think the execution in the ring and even what we're looking at here where Medusa's kind of, you know, I'll teach you. And she's pouring barbecue sauce down his tights. Um, silly, inappropriate, you know, sticky as it is. I think it was executed really well. And hats off to Ed. He did a better. He's doing a great job selling here. He's not overselling. Uh, he's just certainly not underselling. He's just, he's doing a good job. He's I, I, I give props to this
0: and covered in barbecue sauce. Uh, I do want to note the uh, NFL Jersey that Medusa wore to the ring was a Jersey for her husband, Ken Blackman of the Tampa Bay bucks. Uh, I believe uh, your old pal, Alex Marvez actually introduced them. Uh, they're no longer together, but fun little trivia note. And in the back, your favorite wrestler, Brian Knobs, doing a promo with me and Gene here. Hey,
1: I don't have a picture of Brian on my iPhone. Do you? Uh,
0: yeah, we've actually, uh, <laughs> I think, I think everybody listening to this at this point has heard about that picture. Did you enjoy the picture of Brian from the front or the back? The best. I'm sorry. What's the question? There's two pictures of Brian floating around one from the front, one from the back. Which one's your favorite?
1: I can't hear you. Conrad, can you speak up? <laughs> like move it. along, move along.
0: Gotcha. I thought for a minute you uh had an equipment failure, but now I know you're on Bluetooth. You never have an equipment failure.
1: <laughs> All the blood is not rushing to my head, let's put it that way.
0: All right, up next. Oh my gosh. I love Norman Smiley. Can I just tell you how much I love Norman Smiley? So do I. We have we have a
1: we, we we're the two founding members of the Norman Smiley Mutual Admiration Society.
0: The, um, the thing we, we, we didn't really spend much time talking about was the Oklahoma character Medusa hated the angle because of the the thing with Jr, but also the barbecue sauce. She felt like it was demeaning and degrading and just not in good taste all around, not kidding around. Is this maybe top five worst things that WCW did? Do you think the whole Oklahoma stuff?
1: Oh, and it- In it's totality. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, imagine trying to pull that off today. Right. Imagine if you were to make fun of somebody's physical handicap, um, and make it, you know, the basis and the the premise of an angle, um, you'd get, you'd get run out of town, even in a wrestling show. Ironically, you know, wrestling is under the same type of politically correct, you know, scrutiny, as just about everything else is, and yeah, you couldn't get away with that. See that surge bucket there in the corner? I do. That was a sponsorship that I created. This is a little interesting tidbit. I know we don't want to go into the weeds, but I I created that um, campaign, and WCW was the first kind of national exposure of that new product. It was a Coca-Cola product, um, and I kind of put that all together with the then head of Coca-Cola, who then went on to become the head of Turner Broadcasting at some point. So there you go. Little nuance, little tidbit.
0: I do want to mention that the beginning of January, Terry Funk came back to WCW and uh, his role here is going to be as commissioner. In theory, that seems like a fun idea to me. What do you think about Terry Funk in 2000 as a commissioner for WCW?
1: Terry Funk is a great, great character, a lot of credibility. Um, I, I think that that would have been a a fun way to go about it. It wouldn't have, it's not, I don't think it was something that you could sustain over an extended period of time, but for, you know, six months or a year to build a storyline around that, I, I think, um, I think it was a good idea. Don't, I don't hate it. Here's what I do hate though.
0: Brian Hobbs.
1: Garbage man. No, I love Brian Nobbs. Brian's a good friend of mine. I just don't, I just don't like these kind of matches. I hate hardcore matches. There's just nothing other than watching guys beat the hell out of each other, which we've seen about a million times, you know, with garbage cans, which we've seen about a million times, and pie pans and broomsticks and all kinds of other stupid shit. Um, It's just not my thing. And again, I, I, I speak so strongly and aggressively about things like this because it's the way I feel, but I understand how a lot of people like it. I just don't understand why.
0: <laughs> Where do you I mean, fall on um, there being a hardcore division at all? I mean, do you I mean think it, okay. it
1: doesn't mean anything? And it takes away from the more aggressive, out of the ordinary type of action that you might see in other matches that would cause for disqualification or set up an injury angle or some other things. When you see it so much, you become immune to it. it, it it's like. You know, have you ever been into someone's house, you know, a friend of yours or somebody that you you know just met, you walk into the house and it smells like cat shit? No. Because they got cats running all over the place. I,
0: I try not and, to be uh, friends with those people.
1: Yeah, but it happens. We all know. I mean, you can watch television commercials. You talk about it all the time. You walk into your house, you become desensitized to right. the odors in your own home, right? Just like you become desensitized. To some of the things that we see here, and I think these kinds of garbage matches, no pun intended, as we're looking at you know, an arena littered with garbage cans, um, these kinds of matches just clutter up and diminish um, things that you might see later on where it could mean something. It just loses its impact. And then you've got to take it up a notch. You know, when you want to do shoot an angle where you really want to injure somebody, well, you can't hit them with a garbage can because we see that 300 times a a year. So what are we going to use? You know, you got, and then it becomes less and less believable. So I just, I I think it's, I think of it as unentertaining clutter. If I want to watch guys just beat the shit out of each other, I'll watch it on YouTube. For real.
0: One of the uh, interesting things I found doing research for this show is they did an angle where they had Jeff Jarrett working with legends. We saw the, the Jimmy super fly clip earlier. That's of course where Jarrett suffered a concussion. Um, but him snooker and, and George, the animal steel allegedly agreed to come in for somewhere like two or 3000 bucks, but legends like Tito Santana, King Kong Bundy, Bob Backlund, those guys turned it down. Nick Bachwinkle. Uh, but so did your old pal, hockey talk, man. I think that's what this show was really missing. Right? A little hockey talk man action.
1: Oh man. If you could have had that guy come in here with his Elvis gimmick, you know, with a whole bucket full of Twinkies making his way to the ring stuffing his face, shaking his hips, that would have changed the entire destiny of this event. Well, it's oh, a- it's a table. My God, there's a table under the ring. Unbelievable.
0: How many times have we seen that? Yeah. We saw uh, Asia a few minutes ago on the show and and we didn't really mention her. She was involved in the, uh, the Oklahoma Medusa match. Where do you fall on Asia? We haven't talked about her before here on the show. She was smoky, sultry, hot. The kind of hot I dig. All righty.
1: <laughs> what else did I say? About well,
0: you know, just, there's been some criticism from folks who say, obviously it's a ripoff of China. Um, did you guys think you needed a, uh, a more muscular female to sort of counteract the China character? Because she came in in 99. I think you were still there yeah. when she comes in.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think that that was the thought process. I think, you know, I don't know who found her. You know, my guess would be Terry Taylor <laughs> if he was there. Um, Yeah, you know, Scott, Steiner, liked bigger, buffer, crazier looking women. That was probably the, the the extent of the thought process. Oh, wow. She'd look good with Scott and Scott Duggar. So there you go.
0: It's a weird deal where I think she first appeared as a uh, Greek like Flair's nurse. When y'all put him in the mental institution, I'd like to block all that out, but it really happened. And, uh, I think they called her like double D or something like that. And then eventually, yeah, she, uh, she's involved with, uh, a few other wrestlers. I don't
1: know, bro. I don't know if I brought her in or not.
0: I think it happened in like March of 99. So that technically would have been on your watch.
1: Yeah. That would have been under my watch.
0: What was left of it. (laughs) Would it surprise you to hear that Flair was not happy with how he was being used here either? (laughs)
1: <laughs> i you know I can't believe knowing Rick um well Rick's smart Rick was always a smart guy and he would try to go with whichever way he needed to go um to make things work um but I was surprised that he wasn't more outspoken about Russo because I mean you talk about you know complete opposites in terms of philosophy in the wrestling business. I mean, Rick was capable of trying new things and, and doing shit that he'd never done before and putting himself in weird positions. You know, he, he was pretty open-minded, but when the entire creative process is this dysfunctional and disorienting, uh, I think it would drive a guy like even Rick, who is probably one of the more progressive traditionalists that I can think of at this time I can imagine Rick just losing his mind over this shit and being, mostly because it was embarrassing. I mean, it it was just embarrassing. I mean, Norman Smiley, I mean, what a talented, super talented guy. And you know, the gimmick in the way he's portraying it, at least here, was so effeminate, goofy. And so, In, in
0: fairness though, he got
1: it over. He got it over, but that's, that's all credit to him. But the, what he got over really had nowhere to go. You know, it didn't, the character didn't really get over. It was never a money character. It was at best, um, you know, a a supporting kind of cast role. Occasionally there was no money in it.
0: Brian knobs walking out with the uh, hardcore title. He's still the champ some highlights here. What do you think of this action here
1: for Brian? um, Not, not to be critical of him, you know, at this point in his time, he was still pretty uh, physically. He was still in decent shape. His knees weren't that busted up. He wasn't carrying too much extra weight at this time. I think Brian put in 110% here. I mean, and that's the way Brian was. Uh, You give him a chance to get in there with somebody like Ming and just, beat the hell out of each other. He liked that. I mean, he really, really got excited about the prospect of it. And when he was in that ring and they were just pounding each other just to see who could potato who, you know, the most or the worst, uh, that's the kind of environment that Brian liked to work in. So a match like this was made for a guy like Brian. Why are we silly seeing Billy Kidman again here? They're
0: Here's. doing what they're calling triple threat theater. He's going to have three matches on this show. So, I know you were a, a fan of Kidman. You, you did some stuff with him. Um, hey, Somebody else saw something in him here. He's going to get three matches on this show.
1: Billy was a cool dude. I wish I wish he would have had more Mike skill. You know, that was, I mean, technically inside of the ring. His psychology inside of the ring was really second to no one uh, in, in his kind of era. Because Billy was still pretty new here. He's still fairly green here. But he had a lot of great psychology and great ideas and physical attributes. Uh, but when it came to his mic skills, it was just – that's that's what kept him out of the the upper tier, if you will.
0: I want to ask a question here, and I'm not sure where this will lead us. What do you know about Bob Mould? You know, that's it's interesting you bring that
1: up. Bob was a name that I heard about, I think, through Gary Jester. Could be wrong. Um, I think he was a music guy, and I think he was out of Minneapolis. And I started hearing his name towards the end of my run in 99, and then I understand that he got involved somehow in WCW uh, after I left. But I really don't know much about him.
0: He, uh, he quit WCW in January and he was a legend in the alternative rock world and he was brought in to be part of the booking committee and working sort of under Nash. But when Russo and Ferrara come in, uh, he pretty much sees his input diminished and supposedly he was kind of reserved in the meetings and he wasn't really, uh, vocal or taking a stand one way or another and. Uh, as his passion diminished he's wrapping it up
1: yeah I, I like i said i don't think i ever if i met him i don't recall it and i don't think i did ever meet him but i certainly heard his name and i think i can't remember the name of the band that that he made uh he had his success with um it'll come to me at some point but yeah and I, I, mostly he stood out in my mind because he was from minneapolis
0: well he, he worked with uh, a bunch of acts um I mean, he's a, he's a big, he's big in the music industry. Let's just say that.
1: Is he still big? Is he still active?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's run through some, uh, some of the match that's happening here. Perry Saturn is now in there with Billy Kidman. I guess if you're going to have Billy work two matches this close together, you couldn't pick two better guys than Dean Malenko and Perry Saturn.
1: Perry was at the top of his game here. Um, I liked Perry. You know, there was a lot of potential with Perry. Um, Perry was a little bit like Scott Steiner on the mic. Meaning, you, you know, you, you knew you were never going to get, you know, kind of this eloquent piece of art <laughs> when, when he did a promo, but he, he was engaging. He had, he had charisma. He had a unique way about communicating on the mic. And I I found him to be entertaining. Um, And at this point, again, you know, looking at him, obviously, he's in great shape. But um, he wasn't injured. His his flexibility was there. His timing was there. His speed was there. So he looked pretty good in the ring. He's selling a little dead here for me. I wish we would be looking more at his face. But, you know, nice jump back sidekick. Decent. Looked believable. Uh, It was a legit sidekick, by the way. Easy to do that when you're hitting somebody in the hip or in the lower part of their abdomen because you're not going to knock their teeth out. But that looked pretty good. I like I liked him. You know, it's a, he his story ended up being kind of sad. Uh, I don't know where Perry is now. I hope he's doing well. I know that Sonny Ono, ironically, Sonny Ono and Perry Saturn developed a, a very close relationship while they were working together. And Perry fell on real, real, real hard times. He he got addicted and lost everything he owned, and was pretty much living on the street. Uh, and Sonny Ono took him in, uh, got him an apartment, got him a job in Mason City, Iowa. Tried to get him on his feet, but Perry just got uh, the addiction was too much for him. And Sonny eventually lost contact with him. Uh, but I hope Perry's doing well. He he was he's a veteran. Uh, he, he was a good human being is I'm sure today. I hope, uh, and I, hopefully he's, he's got a hold of his addiction issues.
0: Eric, let's hit pause right now. I got to pee. Let's go to one Oh six 42. All right. All right. Three, two, one play. All right. <sighs> so we're, uh, just catching everybody up here. I guess you're watching at home with us and hopefully you are. We're almost to 107. 106.57, uh, 58, 59, 107. Let's talk about uh, your meeting with Brad Siegel. It comes out in the Observer that you met with him on January 5th to talk about a number of subjects, uh, including the main one, which is attempting to buy out the remainder of your contract. Uh, Meltzer would write Whether that means a Fox wrestling project, which is said to be two years away from starting, if it even happens, at this point is all speculative. What was the nature of your meeting with Brad Siegel here? had
1: nothing to do with the buyout of my contract. Turner was not interested even in having that conversation. They made that clear um, in September when they sent me home. So I don't know where that came from. um, But whoever reported it or however it made its way into the the rumored universe, it wasn't true at all. Um, It was just to catch up. Um, Brad and I had always been friends. We, he, despite all of the turmoil and the politics and everything, uh, I always had a good relationship with Brad and we could be honest with each other. Um, so it was really just, uh, me catching up with Brad. How you doing? Where are you at? How's it going? We didn't really talk about, uh, WCW too much, uh, other than, you know, Brad, it was clear Brad was disappointed and the decision that Bill Bush made to bring in Russo, it was clear to me that um, Brad was feeling some pressure, but um, beyond that, it was probably more social than anything. I did, you know, I did float the idea of hey, you know, because, because, you know, Brad did express the frustration that, you know, the entire company was having. And we talked uh, about the, you know, Time Warner issue and what was going on with AOL and everything else that it involved that also, you know, affected a lot of other things within Turner, too, not just WCW. So that was really probably 75% of our conversation. And as a result of that conversation is when I kind of threw out the first suggestion, at least, that uh, maybe a buyout would be better than trying to rehab it, meaning WCW.
0: What was your uh, relationship like with Kevin Nash during this time? Were you talking to him at all?
1: Uh, no. You know, I think the only person I talked to, like I said, during this period of time was Hulk and DDP, you know, Paige being the eternal optimist that he is, it's just his DNA, um, was trying at this point to get me to open my mind at least to, working with Russo. And he had started that back in November, October, November, you know, Paige was trying to convince me that, you know, there was, was really a good guy. And that, you know, we, if I got to know him, we'd really get along. And, you know, he was trying to be a matchmaker is what he was doing. But other than a conversation, you know, once in a while with Paige and, you know, fairly regularly with, with Hulk, where we never really talked about WCW, I didn't really have much contact with anybody and, in the company I, my choice I didn't want them you know my feeling was right or wrong good or bad my feeling was that I had enough heat on me that if and knowing what a political cesspool wCW was um, and Turner was at that time that had I been seen hanging out with somebody in in WCW that was a friend of mine uh, or at leak that I was talking to them it would probably be adverse for them in their career so I just I just kept it myself. I, you know, I was in my mind, I was pursuing other shit and you know, I was going to make movies. I was going to make TV shows. I was going to, I was going to do other stuff. I wasn't going to just sit around Atlanta and collect my check until it disappeared. Two years later.
0: Kevin Nash, uh, is in the observer because they say he's missing house shows, uh, just before sold out because, uh, he suffered a concussion from the, uh, Attack at the hands of Arne Anderson, where Arne hit him with a rubber crowbar. You see the pattern here?
1: You see a pattern in these concussions all of a sudden? All of a sudden, there's all kinds of turmoil. There's political turmoil. There's structural turmoil. Nobody knows if WCW is going to even be a part of Turner Broadcasting in the future because it's becoming such a failure, and everybody sees what's going on within Time Warner and AOL and Turner at the time. And all of a sudden there's concussions everywhere you look. It's amazing. Isn't
0: it? In fairness, nobody can dispute the concussion from Brent Hart, right? No, I'm not suggesting they weren't real. Just suggesting a pattern. Okay. But speaking of Brett, man, he is super critical in his uh, newspaper article. Uh, Younger fans may not know this, but he had a weekly article uh, in the Calgary sun and he, uh, He's really, really critical of the creative and the way wrestling is changing. Uh, It's worth a read. I mean, he has lines in there like, um, the Starcade match with Goldberg was extremely punishing. Really? For days, I pulled myself up feeling like I'd been beat around like a Samsonite suitcase. My match with Benoit was very physical. And then I found myself in there with Jerry Flynn A world-class kickboxer turned into wrestler who I'm amazed didn't break his own feet with how hard he was kicking me in the ribs. This past Tuesday, I ended up in a hardcore match with Terry Funk and woke up with a big goose egg on my head from where he dumped me in a trash bin, Hitman, hardcore in a trash bin. Ah, yes. The times they are changing and don't blame me. I signed an autograph for a guy who asked me the ever present. Is it fake question? And I was stunned to realize I'm not even sure I know how to answer anymore. Is what fake The lump of my head is sure real enough. And he's critical of Russo. He says the phrase "scriptwriter" had no meaning in wrestling until very recently, and he goes on from there, but he's asserting that he's not a stunt man and he's still trying to fight the good fight, but he's clearly, uh, not happy with the way things are going here in WCW either.
1: Well, he, <laughs> First of all, yeah, I I agreed with a lot of what Brett wrote when he wrote it. I I empathized with it, meaning I I felt the same way. I could put myself in Brett's shoes um, and understood why he wrote it. And I didn't disagree with him, but, you know, let's be fair. um, Brett wasn't happy with anything at any time in WCW. So the fact that he wasn't happy at this point is not news, and it's not unusual. It's consistent with with Brett's point of view at that time. Um, but also, you know, if we think back and, and again, you know, I've come from a different era than you did Conrad as a fan. I've also, I'm looking at the business from a different perspective, having, you know, been the president of WCW and kind of firsthand involved in a lot of this stuff. But one of the things that I've always heard from my first days in wrestling is, wow, this is interesting. What are we watching here, Conrad? Help me out. This is first time I've seen this. We, we got Stevie Ray in the hood.
0: Yeah. Stevie Probably. Ray, um, in real life, wandering around, uh, chatting with some folks. And I think what we're going to see here is a build for his feud with his brother, Booker T. And he's saying, as we see a cardboard box covered with blankets, this is where we come from. This is somebody's home. This is the ghetto. And that's sort of the story he's trying to tell is this is where we're from. And I'm not going to let you forget that this is where we're from. I'm going to teach you a lesson.
1: I think, I think that that's a, you know, this has got an HBO, you know, behind the scenes kind of vibe to it. So I'm, I'm not hating on this.
0: What's cool is as he's, as he's dapping all these dudes up, one of the guys says, uh, Hey, Stevie Ray. Good to see you, man. Where's Booker? And, of course, <laughs> they're trying to push, you know, you don't come around here no more. And uh, it's a cool I story.
1: I don't hate this. Going back to what I was about to say there, and I'll finish it up quickly, you know, that same conversation or that same um, editorial that, that Brett came out with, I've heard that same thing from, you know, Dusty Rhodes to Oli Anderson to Kurt Ganya, you know, everybody that I've talked to that was a generation older than the current generation in wrestling all kind of lament the fact that the industry has changed, the business has changed. It's not what it used to be. The young guys are killing the business. I've been hearing that same conversation since 1987 from different people. I listened to it from Nick Bachmeier. I listened to it from Wahoo McDaniel. I listened to it from Ray Stevens. You know, I've listened to that same conversation over and over and over again, and it's true. You know, I think you know the business. If you look at it today, it doesn't reflect at all what the business was 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It's completely different. It's completely scripted. It's completely sanitized on the one side of the equation, meaning WWE on the other side of the equation. You know, you're watching stuff on the independent scene that looks more like America's dumbest home videos in some cases. And then there's, there's great stuff in the middle. Like, Cody and the Bucks are doing and all-in and Ring of Honor and other independent organizations are doing some really cool stuff. It's kind of all over the map, but undeniably, the industry has changed and it always will. It'll be different 20 years from now than it is today. You, just gotta, you either adapt or you, or you cry about it. You know, you either adapt with it, change your expectations, you know, embrace the new way that the product is being presented, or you sit back and you get bitter and you talk about the good old days. It's just the nature of the business. Same is probably true with really hardcore football fans who, you know, back in the day when we used to watch football, you know, they really played the game. Now they're a bunch of pansies and, you know, shit changes. Got
0: to change with it. Well, let me ask you about the change that's happening here, because in this video we just watched that you and I both agreed was well done. And it was cool. You know, Stevie Ray saying you turned your back on the hood. Now I'm turning my back on you. I mean, it's sort of a baby face promo. Is it not to say, oh, you've changed and you know, I'm still good to these people and they miss you and you don't come here anymore. It sort of makes Booker the heel. Does it not?
1: It does. It it certainly does. And it would have been nice if he would have come out and, you know, carried himself like a heel but i liked the i like the backstory you know as critical well, as i am of of russo and his creative or whoever was involved in this maybe russo had nothing to do with this who knows uh or maybe he did and deserves credit for it but i liked it you
0: well know, what's it, weird to me though is that i think the desired effect is that stevie raised the heel and booker t's the baby face but that was well, sure that's
1: back ass that you know, that would counterintuitive for sure yeah it's look, storytelling, I think, in wrestling, and as well as characters in wrestling. I've always said this anybody that's ever really worked close, closely with me in creative has probably heard me say this a thousand times. When you, when you paint the picture of a wrestling story, in my opinion, it should be done with big, broad strokes and bright, fluorescent colors there's no room for nuance and shades of gray in a wrestling story for the most part, 90% of the time, there's no room for it. It's very easy, simple, relatable human story. Now you have to turn the volume up on it. You have to exaggerate some of it, but if it's plausible, if it's simple, it's really the chances of it being successful are very, very good. It's when you when you nuance it and you shades of gray it and you double entendre it where most stories fall apart, especially you know during this period of time with Russo, because you know he he loved to get lost in the shades of gray and the nuance that nobody else could follow, only him. I mean, he could see the picture in his mind, and unfortunately nobody else could. And I think when you take a basic story like this could have been, with With Stevie as the baby face, going back to his roots, because that's what that was, going back to the the neighborhood, going back to the friends that he had, you know, growing up. That's an endearing human quality. That speaks a lot about that person as a as a human being and as a man. But if you're gonna do that and try to position him as a baby face, you're kind of you're you're writing the story in reverse. You're writing it backwards. It's stupid taking something that could have worked so well and, and just ruining it because you don't have basic understanding of simple storytelling structure. It's really not that hard. It's, it's incredible how hard, you know, people see and I've done it myself. I'm not pointing fingers at other people. I have done this myself. I've made this mistake, but it's incredible how often we make things way more complicated than it needs to be. And it's always the simple shit that works.
0: Hypothetically, are are you uh, are you moving soon? Are you packing up boxes in the background right now?
1: No, why? Did you hear noise?
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're packing China. No, oh, beep, well, hold
1: on, that's my dog. She's got one of my shoes. Hold on, <laughs> I'll be right back with you. Nikki's throwing my shoes around the house because she wants to go for a hike. This is her time. We're infringing on my dog's morning here, and she's about ready to have enough of it.
0: And I apologize for that. No, no big deal. Hey, so I want to mention that Kidman Perry Saturn match. Kidman got the win 10 minutes and five seconds. Of course, the first match the Kidman was in was supposed to be a catch as catch can match with no ropes. And the first person who touches the floor is eliminated. This was supposed to be a bunkhouse match, but nobody told Saturn. So he just wore his wrestling gear. He didn't wear any jeans, which is normally what you would wear. And a bunkhouse match. And they didn't do a bunch of brawling. They did a bunch of wrestling. Apparently he was suffering from a bit of a knee injury and felt like using a bunch of weapons around the ring might not benef- uh to his benefit. So even though it's called a bunkhouse match, they don't do a lot of bunkhouse shit. So two wins for Kidman, but neither match really lives up to the stipulation.
1: Let's talk a little bit about creative too. And, and kind of this stupidity of, what was going to be a bunkhouse match? At least, it, it that was the intent going into this pay-per-view. Why? Why would you have a bunkhouse match, which is kind of hard to define anyway? What the fuck is a bunkhouse match, particularly? What is a bunkhouse match with reference to the hardcore match that we would have seen following? I mean, why would you have two matches like that back to back? It, it, it makes that's that's exactly that. What we just saw and what it was intended to be, more, more importantly, is exactly what I mean about garbage and not really understanding the product and not really having a hand on creative. Why would you stack two matches, w- which are basically identical, because a bunkhouse match, I don't know, maybe there's a rope involved or a cowbell or some shit, but it's essentially a hardcore match. And then that precedes another hardcore match, and the audience is supposed to care. That's, that's, that's where I pull the plug and go, you don't have a clue what you're doing.
0: It's pretty, um, pretty crazy. You know, what all's going on behind the scenes here? You know, we've talked about how we're careening towards, you know, some conflict with Russo and Sullivan. I guess we should tell you eventually what happens is they go to Russo and say, Hey, we, uh, we've decided we're going to need you to work in a committee. So you're not fired. We'd love for you to be a part of what we're doing, but you're going to have to work here as part of a committee. And and Russo wants no part of that. Uh, so he goes home and he goes home with 21 months left on his 24 month contract. So the tenure, not really nearly what people expected. Uh, and we know he's not done. He's going to be back and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, when he came back later, but one of the reasons that he lost confidence allegedly is the decision was made to strip Bret Hart of the world title and create a new champion at the pay-per-view and Russo's idea was to do a battle Royal or a Royal rumble type match on the show and end with a new surprise champion, tank Abbott. And a lot of people don't love that idea and they couple that with the Oklahoma cruiserweight title situation. And they really do believe that that's probably enough.
1: Enough of Vince Russo. I, I can tell you having worked with Vince now, again, this period of time that we're talking about here was before I had ever met Vince Russo. I eventually Red Siegel called me and we'll talk about that either on the show or some other show, because it was right about this time, by the way, probably shortly after this, um, Lori and I were – I had my own plane at the time, and I had flown – we lived in Atlanta, but we had our home here in Wyoming as well. And I, Lori and I jumped in my plane. I flew up to Minneapolis, picked up my brother and sister, and then we flew out to Wyoming to watch the Super Bowl. And then on my way home – and I'm not sure about the timing of this – was I was sitting in a Chili's restaurant. I'll never forget. And I could see the television was on in the background. It was a Monday night. And Raw was on, and I saw, you know, Chris Benoit, and Eddie, and and everybody, you know, making their debut on Raw. And I looked across at my wife, and I said, "I guarantee you, Brad Siegel is going to be calling me within the next two weeks." And by the time I got on my plane the next morning, and Lori and I flew back home to Atlanta within forty-eight hours, I had Brad Siegel was calling me, so I I predicted it, but I think. You know, what they realized, not only did Mr. Russo have nothing really to offer creatively and that he, he wasn't the solution that they had hoped for, he he, he he was incapable of accountability. He was even more incapable of collaborating and working with people. And, and And accountability and collaboration kind of go hand in hand because when you know you don't really have anything, the last thing you want to do is to expose that to a bunch of other people. And that's that's where Russo fell apart. You know, he wasn't going to work in the committee. He, he wanted to be the only guy that was calling the shots. And unfortunately, the shots were so horrible. And the things that Vince Russo had been doing were so bad that nobody was willing to tolerate it. I know Brad Siegel wasn't. We talked about it when he hired me to come back.
0: So... I think the, the thinking from Bill Bush is, you know, and this is a, a phrase that Russo hates, but that all of his ideas that were a hit in the WWF were filtered by Vince McMahon. And that's certainly, um, the narrative that a lot of people within wrestling have been led to believe I wasn't there. I don't know, but I think that Bill Bush sort of landed on the same thing that if we put Russo in a committee with other people who have a more traditional wrestling background, maybe the result could be a winning combination, but Russo does not want to do that, but both Ed Ferrara and Bill Banks are agreeable to that. And of I th- course, they were, what else were they going to do? <laughs> Allegedly, uh, your boy, Bill Banks even tried to pitch, Hey, uh, let me do something else like work on the magazine or the website, but they want him to stay on and, and, and work with TV by committee.
1: Now, see here's and I, I got to stop you there because I know you, you know you cover a lot of ground. First of all, Bill Banks is not my boy. I don't know why, where that came from. I was not I, I, I don't dislike Bill, and, and I, I don't like him either. I don't have any relationship at all with him. I don't. I'm ambivalent towards him. Let's put it that way. Neither good nor bad. I, I will. I worked with him, you know, for a cup of coffee, um, and he's a good, solid, kind of get it done. Guy, you know, I I refer to guys like him as kind of bricks and mortar people. If you if you show them the plan, if you give them the materials, if you challenge them to accomplish a task, they will accomplish that task very well. That was Bill Banks to me. Um, However, he didn't have any reason to be involved in television. He was the most uncreative, unimaginative um, person I think I'd ever met. So it's just because you are a wrestling fan – and this is a mistake that I think a lot of people have made in the past and will probably continue to make in the future at some point. Just because you're a wrestling fan doesn't mean you understand the wrestling business. Just because you're a wrestler doesn't mean you understand the business of the wrestling business. And I think all too often people who have no understanding of the wrestling business in a real functional operational way – look at somebody like Bill Banks and go, wow, he's a hardcore wrestling fan and he remembers all this and he's a walking, talking encyclopedia and, you know, he loves wrestling. Well, he should be on. He should be in charge of TV or he should be a part of the booking committee. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. That's like saying, you know, because you're a big football fan, even though you've never played the game, you've never coached a team, you've never done anything in the, in the business of the football business, but because you're such a fan and you can tell me, you know – how many yards are gained on the third down play in the fourth quarter You know of this game in 1962 that all of a sudden that qualifies you to be involved in the business of the wrestling business? And I think that's how a lot of peripheral players you know, made their way into WCW at this time because the guy running the company, ultimately Brad Siegel, and, and in a more boots on the ground fashion, Bill Bush, between the two of them didn't have a clue – of the business of the wrestling business. Brad did more than Bill Bush, but for the most part, they didn't really understand the business that they were operating. So you're gonna make those mistakes. You're gonna make those judgments in the people you surround yourself with. If you don't know what you don't know, you're gonna be desperate and you're gonna hire people that you think do. And that's what happened with Bill Banks. It wasn't that he's a bad guy or he didn't have value. So he was miscast. You know, it's the same thing I did with Ted DiBiase. If you miscast someone, no matter how much talent they may have, um, you're putting them in a role where they're destined to fail.
0: Well, speaking of failing, here's Jerry Flynn and Tank Abbott. (laughs) Nice transition, dude. This is, uh, on a pay-per-view, my friend, it's a shoot fight match. With a kickboxer and uh, an MMA UFC superstar.
1: Number one, I understand why on paper this match is on. I kind of get it. No, I don't kind of get it. In 2000, I would have gone, okay, I understand why. That's probably not a bad idea. I, I would have participated in this clusterfuck. But, you know, Jerry Flynn's not a real karate guy. He's just wearing a black belt pretending he is. I may take that back. That wrong kick looked pretty decent for a big guy. So maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe he was a karate guy. Yeah, I'll give him some. Yep, he was. My bad. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm pretty sure he was. No, I'll, I can could, I could tell by the way he was throwing those kicks. Those were not gimmick kicks. Those were somebody that had some real training, whether he was a black belt or not, I don't know, but I will give him credit. He was a martial artist. He did have some training. I was absolutely wrong in my earlier commentary. So I understand why this is on now, you know, keep in mind, again, context is King tank. Abbott was kind of a, uh, a, a bigger name in the UFC. The UFC was still in its infancy at this time. In fact, it was about this time that Art Davies maybe a little bit before this Uh, the original owner of the UFC called me and asked me if I'd be interested in buying the UFC for two and a half million dollars. Jerry, Jerry Flynn looks like he's legit knocked out there.
0: Can you imagine how different your life would have been? Had you done that?
1: Uh, Yeah. My life would have been different had I made all of the right decisions come across, you know, the fertitas and everything else that fell in place would have fallen into place, but likely you know, when, when, when Art Davies came to me and asked me if I was interested in buying UFC, obviously I didn't have $2 million in my checking account. He was interested in selling it to Turner. Turner would have never, especially at this time. I mean, not in a, not in a million years under these circumstances would Turner, Time Warner, AOL have even looked. They wouldn't even – I wouldn't have lasted five minutes in a conversation about acquiring UFC at this time. Woof. No. $4 billion later. And that's not me. I mean, that's Turner Broadcasting. They were cutting fat. They were trying to get out of this kind of business. The UFC had a horrible reputation in 98, 99, and 2000. They were the scourge of the pay-per-view industry because our Davey really mismanaged his business and pissed off a lot of the pay-per-view providers. So it's not like the UFC. Nobody had a crystal ball and knew what the Pertittas were going to do. They didn't know that the Pertittas were going to spend years losing probably upwards close to $50 million before they made a nickel. And they didn't make a nickel in the UFC until Spike TV put on the uh, the, the UFC reality show. That was the catalyst that made UFC eventually become successful, but that didn't happen until years after this.
0: How roll tied was Kimberly here?
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. You, t- you know, it's, it's funny how in my whole life I've been surrounded by overachievers, myself being one of them. And it's funny how, you know, certain people in the wrestling business end up with the most amazing women. It's just cracks me up. I but, feel fortunate.
0: Good our good salesman.
1: Our good buddy, I was just going to say, Dave Silva, Dave Hancock. I saw a picture of Dave Hancock's wife the other day. I went, like, what the hell? Dude. Have you got a trust fund somebody doesn't know about? I mean, what the hell? You know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, even Jay-Z, Jay-Z Flair. I mean, he's a, you know, a good-looking guy. He's in shape. He's young. He's successful. You know, I, I guess I can tell a little bit, you know, from, from what I know of him in social media. He's a very active kind of a guy. But with all those attributes, you know, under Jay-Z Flair's, you know, calling card, he's still overachieved, And I think it's just amazing in our own little circuit. We've just, we're, we're a bunch of overachievers, yourself included. My friend.
0: Well, here's, here's a guy who I would not categorize as an overachiever. Mr. Buff Bagwell, but he is going to overachieve in this match. I guess they're going to have the best match on the card. According to the wrestling observer reader poll and even Meltzer himself. I do want to circle back just a minute ago. We saw uh, the finish of the Stevie Ray Booker T match and Believe it or not, Ahmed Johnson from the WWF jump ship. And now, well, he wasn't with the WWF, but either way, he popped up on WCW and he's going to be called big T here. Uh, and he looks like, uh, a a more inflated version of Ahmed Johnson. What'd you think of working with big T you had a little bit of interaction with him, right?
1: I had very, very little, you know, not enough interaction to really, um, have an opinion of him. Um, Got along with him fine. He's professional, had no issues with him, but it was very, very kind of superficial contact at 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 best.
0: How about the girl in the uh, crowd holding up a sign that says "Buff ate my stuff"?
1: Where is that? Oh, I saw the sign. Well, I got to get a look at the girl. <laughs> well, if he did, Buff is going to try real hard to get that sign out of her hands. <laughs> That that's a gimmick killer right there.
0: Brawling through the crowd here. Give everybody a time cue here. Eric, Tell them where we are.
1: We are well, I'll tell you where I'm at. Hopefully you and I are synced up. I'm at one hour thirty six minutes and fifty six seconds and counting as Page and Bagwell fight their way through the crowd and this is where Diamond Dallas Page always feels at home, he is a man of the people, he is the original people's champion, and you get how, you get him out amongst his fans amongst the blue collar workers, the hard working fans that love professional wrestling Diamond Dallas Page will be at his peak, on the other hand you've got Marcus Bagwell now who's on the receiving hand of the big right hand, as both men simultaneously go down Mark Bagwell, he is a a metrosexual germaphobe who hates being out amongst the people. <laughs> well, well, I can't watch all this action without starting to call some play-by-play. As Simon Dallas Page now makes his way attacking Bagwell. Bagwell looking for the backstage exit he wants the hell out of here but page says uh-uh brother we're going back into the ring diamond Dallas page is he gonna fall is he gonna fall no he comes down he is on the mat outside of the ring going after Bagwell Bagwell with a big reverse bam, into the guardrails. Down goes Page. He's on one knee. He is compromised at this position. Marcus Bagwell taking advantage. Big right hand along the side of the head. Now back in under the bottom ring rope. Marcus Bagwell in control. And Diamond Dallas Page comes down with a double axe handle. I'm blowing up, brother. It's been a long time.
0: I I like that you're channeling your inner Tony Schiavone, but i got to tell you, for a buff Bagwell match, I just can't do it. In fact, I guess we should just clear the air right now. So how about the, uh,
1: double television crash and, oh my God, that was outstanding television. Do you agree? Look at Mark Madden. Mark Madden's going, I'm getting the hell out of here. I don't want this. Who's another guy with Mark Madden?
0: Chad D'Amati.
1: Chad D'Amati. That's right. I'm bad with names. I didn't get to know
0: Chad. Is he a cool dude? Do you know him? Uh, I met him briefly at StarCast. He, uh, he, uh, is the co-host with Raven on Raven's podcast, The Raven Effect? Oh,
1: okay. There's Doug Dillinger, looking like Burl Ives. <laughs> I miss Doug. Doug was cool. Lot of road trips with Doug Dillinger and Dusty Roads. Lots of them. This is a good match, by the way, Conrad. I, I, yeah. I think it's lived up to its height. These two guys. You know, all kidding aside and, you know, knocking this pay-per-view aside, um, these two guys really are putting in a lot of hard work here, and they're telling a good story. I like it.
0: I want to mention the uh, the turmoil is coming to a head because of this turnover with uh, Vince Russo. And so I know we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Russo, but Meltzer would write what management hadn't counted on was that not only was Russo far more popular than Sullivan, but that Sullivan had made so many strong enemies with the feeling being that he was directly responsible for several of the wrestlers being stuck in the middle of the card and lazier and generally older wrestlers, keeping their top spots. Sullivan can be blamed for what happened when it happened on his watch, but that situation continued with every booker the company's had in recent years. Russo was generally liked by the wrestlers personally, although the general feeling was his work up to that point had been a major disappointment an opinion that also changed in some circles where he, uh, faced was, was faced with the idea of Sullivan being in power. So I guess a lot of the guys here, they're upset that Russo's out. And more importantly, they're very upset that Sullivan's back. Um, long, Meltzer would write, long before Russo was replaced, several wrestlers had talked, not so privately, about banding together against Sullivan, who, for whatever reason, was seen as the person who would eventually get Russo's job, although the belief was not this soon. The heat with Benoit, who now lives with Sullivan's former wife, Nancy, and the couple is now expecting their first child shortly. So the personal heat between the two, ironically mirroring a pro wrestling angle, booked by Sullivan, is intense. Benoit felt that when Sullivan was in power, he sabotaged his career, and Benoit felt there was no way he could work under Sullivan under any circumstance. And Benoit's long-term friends, dating back to the New Japan days, include Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero. Had pretty well decided from day one that they'd always stick together in the business. Harry Saturn and Shane Douglas had also become close with Benoit based on working together over the last year, and the talk that Sullivan would get Russo's spot had been going on internally. But once the boys know, uh, they're not happy. Allegedly on Saturday, a group of what was believed to be 15 to 20 wrestlers were expected to confront bill Bush before the show, this show we're talking about now as a group and asked for their release as a protest against Sullivan being named Booker. Perry was the most adamant since Bush stated at a meeting when he took over as the man in charge, that if anyone was unhappy in the company, he'd give them their full release. Well, what winds up happening is Chris Benoit, Perry Saturn, Dean Malenko, Shane Douglas, Eddie Guerrero, Conan, and Billy Kidman all go to Bill Bush as a group and ask for their release or for Sullivan to be taken off the booking committee. And Conan says he's also there speaking on behalf of Juventud Guerrero and Ray Mysterio Jr., who aren't at the pay per view because they're injured. So this all happens the day of this show. Man, that's a lot of moving and going on, is it not?
1: Well, Bush set himself up for it. You know, he made a move. Um, he he miscalculated. He aligned himself with some of the worst people you could possibly align yourself with, and Gary Jester and Sharon Sadello and and your your good buddy. Uh, I won't pick on him anymore. <laughs> but he just miscalculated, and the, the backlash was there. And on one of the other elements <clears throat> or aspects of all of this turmoil <clears throat> and the politics associated with it is and, and this was Russo's mo like one of the one of the ways he got himself over with as you pointed as you, as you put it the boys the, the talent in the locker room particularly the younger ones okay was he would go to them and he would whine and he'd bemoan and he'd piss and he'd just Go on and on and on about, you know, he was so passionate about, you know, giving these young guys a chance. So a lot of the younger, newer, less secure talent who didn't really have a lot of experience looked at Russo as their their pathway, you know, to become a huge star and kind of get the push that they all wanted and justifiably, rightfully, naturally. So if you're a young talent and and you, you're getting some TV time and you've got a guy like Vince Russo who's in your year telling you how great you are, and you're he's your advocate, and he's going to work his guts out and sacrifice, and, you know, give you the spot and the spotlight and the, an opportunity to shine. Naturally, you're going to support that guy. Of course you are. Whereas some of your more veteran talent that can see through your bullshit Eh, not so much. And I think that it didn't cause the political turmoil. Uh, again, I wasn't there, but I do know Russo. I've seen him do it. I saw him do it in WCW while I was working with him. I saw him do it afterwards when I was in TNA. That's his, that's his MO. That's how he gets himself over. And again, he's a charming guy. He's good at it. He couldn't convince the uneducated that he's the answer to a problem or he's your salvation. He's good at it. The problem is people figure it out, and then he goes home because he melts down because he doesn't know how to handle the real pressure of being in this position. He, he, his record of melting down and going home um, is probably some kind of a world record in, in the entertainment industry because the minute you put any pressure on him of any kind, he melts down and goes home. That's That's not a leader. That's not a creative guy. That's just – kind of a, a, an empty suit, which is, well, in Russo's case, not a suit, but there was just no there there. And when the pressure came about, you know, the results or, the, or, or the, the, the end result was predictable. But one of the ways that Vince mitigated it was by banding that young talent together that would support him. And that was manifesting itself here. And it was pretty obvious, I think, to everybody.
0: So, Buff Bagwell gets the win here, and Kimberly comes out. And now the question is what's she doing out here? Who's she pulling for? Who's she with? They did have a pretty good match here. Best match on the card, they would say. Best match on the card. I'm not sure I
1: understand the finish here. No, I, you know, right. in in all honesty, I don't know where the story was supposed to go. So maybe there you know, this is serialized entertainment, it's episodic TV. So maybe that little nuance at the end, that little question mark about their relationship at the end of that match was actually leading to something else. And if that's the case, that's probably great, great storytelling. I don't know where it went. If it didn't go anywhere, then it was just, you know, kind of a distracting way to, um, leave you with a relatively flat unemotional finish because i don't think you know again i've got the sound turned out but i don't think the finish got quite the reaction you would want it to because because of the way it was laid out
0: Meltzer wrote bagwell did the blockbuster but ddp beat the 10 count bagwell hit ddp with a police nightstick but ddp ddp got up and then he gave bagwell a diamond cutter go figure this time it was ddp who didn't get up and they did an angle where kimberly came out but she did nothing. And they teased. They didn't know which one she had come out to help three and a quarter stars. It's like a, a last man standing t- style match. And next up we've got, uh, something that I don't think anybody expected the wall and Kidman. Meltzer would write, please don't ask me to explain this result. I'll let you guys take a look here. I, I do want to mention that that was this whole thing with Kidman was not the original plan. They did a live pregame show and, um, they do an angle on the show where the Revolution attacks Conan with five kicks and then Conan is stretchered out. And they're doing this to get him out of the picture so the card can be changed for Kidman to work three matches against three different members of the Revolution, the third pick being a surprise. The original plan was Conan and Kidman to pick Tory Wilson as their partner and Saturn and Malenko to come out without a partner. And then early in the match, Wilson was going to turn on Kidman and then join the revolution, Uh, at the end, somehow Asia was going to wind up with the filthy animals, and this is all scrapped, uh, because they, uh, thought they were doing this turn too soon and wanted to instead give the wall, the break as this mystery partner. So lots of, uh, changes here. And by the way, I guess I should mention, uh, Conan is the first to feel the backlash over sort of standing up to bill bush is at the conclusion of this show jj dylan is going to come to conan and say hey we're sending you home uh so who knows where that's going to wind up but everybody else is sort of jockeying for position bull but bill bush tries to buy some time and says give me a week after the pay-per-view to let things sort of smooth out and if you're still not happy i'll grant you your release and nobody seems to be happy with that benoit Allegedly doesn't even want to win the title tonight, which is what we're going to see because he feels like it would just do the service or the company a disservice as well. But everybody's in his ear saying, you know, don't align yourself with the wrong people here. They've got big plans for you. Nash is even telling Perry that he's going to look out for him and he's going to get a big push. Kidman is told he'll get a major singles push and not just, uh, the cruiserweight level, but into the United States title picture. So they're trying to placate everybody, but the guys are not necessarily sold. And a lot of this is based in the reality of the head booker. Well, his ex-wife is now with, with Benoit. I mean, that, that the stickiness and the weirdness of that whole dynamic just cannot be overstated. Can it?
1: No. And, and honestly, as you're laying all that out. Um, from your point of view, I, I, I've never, first of all, I don't think about this period of time too much because I wasn't involved with it. So it's just not on my radar. But as you lay this all out and as we're watching what we're watching and we're exposing some of the things that were going on behind the scenes, it, it's almost like it, it, it should be the, the script for a made for TV movie of some sort, you know, about the most dysfunctional period of time, you know, in, in entertainment. In, in this particular genre, at least, because it, you couldn't—if you scripted it, it would be almost too hard to believe. Like if you scripted the, the Nancy Benoit um, relationship, Kevin Sullivan relationship, and what started out as a work and it ended up being a real deal, and and all of the, the tumult that went along with that—if you scripted it out, and you you know, you, you presented it to a network, your notes would probably you know come back to you sounding something like you know. We got to find a way to make it more believable. That's just too far outside, you know, plausibility for the audience to get it, for the story to feel real. But in at this period of time it was real to have a guy like Bill Bush who was really nothing more than an accountant. I don't think he was even a CPA. He he was an accountant and he was a good one. He, and he was really, really smart about the inner workings of Turner Broadcasting. He had good relationships with the people on the finance side. so he had a he was a very valuable asset in, in, in his category in, in, in the context of what he was really there to do. But to now take that guy because he's the only one anybody could think of and say, okay, now you're calling these shots and all of a sudden thrust him into a world that he had never had any experience in whatsoever other than watching it unfold Um, and putting him in that spot, you know, I mean, he set himself up for it. He 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 worked hard to be put in that position. So it was self inflicted. But man, he put himself in a position that he was destined to fail in. He was a very – and again, I don't mean to be – when I say this, I can't just can't think of another word. He was a very weak person when it came to dealing with other people, particularly people in the wrestling business who have a tendency to be kind of overbearing, overpowering. Personality. Sometimes, a lot of wrestlers knew how to use that character and that personality, and they knew how to work and manipulate people that were insecure and not really very experienced in in the in their world. And Bill put himself in that position. I can only imagine, only imagine the just the emotion and the frustration and the confusion. That was going on backstage as a result of all these politics with Kevin Nash, with Kevin Sullivan, with Bill Bush, with, you know, Conan and his group of people with all of the talent, you know, the aforementioned that went and asked Bush for his release. Even Bill must have been, you know, he must have been going home in Atlanta because he lived, you know, we used to live about two blocks from each other in Atlanta. I can imagine Bill Bush just going home and you know, pounding his skinny little head on a table going, why did I do this? Why did I put myself in this position? Because the people that encouraged him and helped set him up, you know, Sharon Sadella and Gary Jester, they were of no help. They, they just, When this shit started hitting the fan, they did what they've always done, step back, let everybody else take the heat and survive it long term. So he didn't really have any help or anybody to guide him you know it would be like me taking over the you know the space program because i i had a pilot's license once you know you're just in over your head and that's what we're that's what we've been talking about you know all the drama going on backstage as a result of that you know the wall you know just out here hammering you know first of all nobody knew who the wall was he was a very insignificant character but now he's in the main event you know i guess they're trying to get him over that would probably be the argument they're trying to get him over but I don't know. To me, this comes off very WCW Saturday Night-ish, circa 1993.
0: And it sort of undoes everything they did with Kidman when he got a win over Malenko and Saturn because the the wall's just going to squash him here. So I, I don't I don't really understand what this does for Kidman and well, why you would spend. I'll,
1: I'll help you try to understand it. I mean, there's you you won't be able to because there's nothing to understand. It doesn't make any sense. But the, they're taking advantage, I'm sure, of the fact that Wall is a big guy. So what? There's a lot of big guys. Right. He was a spectacular character. He wasn't intimidating necessarily. Um, he, he just was a big guy and they're trying to make him this big badass. Why the white shirt and black tie? I'm not sure. Maybe that was consistent with whatever character they were trying to establish at the time, but he's not a character that, you know, you're going to become overwhelmed with his sheer power and size and empathize with Billy because of it. It's just a flat match. He's just another big guy in the wrestling business. He's not a superstar he shouldn't have been beating Billy Kidman to death like this. Billy Kidman was a legit potentially, you know, upper middle card kind of talent. And here he's just getting jobbed out by a guy with marginal talent at best.
0: Let's talk about what happened the next day at nitro. Um, of course, after this show, which is going to be an interesting finish and and we'll get there in a minute. They, uh, the guys all show up. This is, this is wild, man. Before nitro Bush meets with the revolution members and Benoit. And at this point, it looks like Kidman is now second guessing his decision. And maybe he wants to stay, uh, neither Eddie Guerrero or Conan are even at the show and bill Bush proposes a compromise where he says, I'm not going to fire Kevin Sullivan because he's got a family to support. But what if we just made him the booker of WCW Saturday night? That way you won't ever have to worry about him having any power over your booking because I'll guarantee you'd never have to work a Saturday night taping. And he also asked their group, who do you think would make the best booking team? And they suggest Terry Taylor, Vince Russo, and Arn Anderson. And it feels like a compromise has been made. But then later in the afternoon, Bush calls them in for a second meeting and tells all of them, except Benoit, who the TV show was really scheduled to be built around as the new world champion, that they're going to be sent home. Perhaps partially because the group had filed a complaint with the human resources department of time Warner against the road agent, Mike Graham. And the plan was that the heel commissioner, Nash, was going to force Benoit to three title defenses on the show against Brian Knobs, Lex Luger, and a third person that had, y- had not yet named. And Benoit was to win all three matches. So they're trying to play to his ego here and assume that he's, for lack of a better term, a mark for the belt and the push. And management thinks this is going to work because it doesn't feel like there's any hesitation to put the belt on him the day before. But Benoit instead says if they're being sent home then he's going too because they're they're going to be together as a group. And Bill Bush threatened if he leaves then he's going to be stripped of the title. <laughs> and Benoit throws the title belt in a garbage can and leaves Nitro. <laughs> or that's the report that would come out, but that's not actually what happened. They stay for a little while as a group and then get new plane tickets to go home. And then Benoit, in fact, just hands the belt over to Nick Patrick before leaving. Now of course, they have a plan, you know what if this happens and we'll see it during the match. But really nobody was expecting Benoit to leave. They didn't have a backup plan for Nitro that night and now they've got no members of the revolution, and the walls going to come out on that show, but without the revolution, music Kidman's still going to be there, but so's Kevin Sullivan which I don't think anybody ever predicted that the man who would survive all of this was Kevin Sullivan, the complaint against uh, Mike Graham to human resources allegedly was when he said something like, if you had done to his, to my wife, what you did to his, I'd have your head on a stick or something like that. And the guys go and complain that call has become Sort of legendary, infamous, if you will. Did you ever hear about the Mike Graham call to HR? And what was your take on all that?
1: I never heard about it until now. You know, again, I wasn't there during this period of time. And I can only imagine. First of all, I don't think HR, even in their hypersensitive um, frame of mind that they were in at this point, with especially with regards to WCW, keep in mind. H.R. Turner, that's a Turner thing, not a WCW thing. Got to separate them. Turner Public Relations was so hypersensitive because of the the pending mergers. That was the most important thing to every single executive in Turner Broadcasting. While I was there prior to being sent home in September, for months leading up to you know, during the course of the negotiations with AOL Time Warner, two things mattered: public relations and EBITDA. Those are the only two things anybody cared about. And the last thing HR, and because HR and PR would, would obviously be speaking to each other, the last thing that HR wanted was any kind of, of an issue, particularly because of its history in WCW. They're scared to death of it. By its very nature, by the fact that we were in arena having these types of matches with, you know, the crowd right at the ring rail as we're watching now. Kevin Nash is, you know, beating the hell out of Terry Funk. And there are people standing literally 18 inches away. You know, the the risk for injury and litigation and bad PR and all that kind of stuff was first and foremost in a lot of people's minds in Turner Broadcasting. So the very hint that someone in an authority position like Mike Graham was would have done something that fell outside of a, you know, HR, um, kind of parameter. Um, I'm sure they threw extra red flags more so than they would have maybe a year or two earlier. Now, that being said, uh, I can't imagine that anybody, especially that group would have gone to HR with a complaint as lame as that particularly given you know, Mike Graham's tendency, as, as well as a lot of ours, by the way, myself included, to say a lot dumber shit than that. So I would imagine whatever came out of Mike's mouth that would have warranted a call to PR, whether it was for political purposes or otherwise, would have been a little bit more acidic and toxic than just, I'd have your head on a stick.
0: I want to mention that, uh, WCW does wind up sending unconditional release letters to Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Conan, Shane Douglas, Eddie Guerrero, and Perry Saturn on the 19th, which canceled their planned meeting with Bill Bush to have a follow-up meeting and instead allowed them all to start with WWE as soon as February 1st. Uh, they had to agree to not publicly disparage WCW and agree not to sue WCW. And after both sides sign the releases, they're executed on the 25th with Benoit, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, and Perry Saturn being the four who actually do it. So this group of six uh, dwindles a little bit because Conan has thought better of this and said, while I was there supporting the group, I never directly asked for my release.
1: <laughs> Come on, Conan.
0: Bill Bush says, no, I kind of think you did. And the company at that point, is second guessing whether or not they even want him to be a part of WCW. And Dean Douglas also doesn't sign his release because his attorney says, do absolutely nothing that would breach your contract with WCW and do not sign the release because he's not so sure that he'd be welcomed back with open arms. So he reaches out to Steve Austin to see if Vince McMahon would be willing to let him come back. And Vince says, well, maybe if you're willing to forgive prior tenure with the company so that doesn't give him the warm and fuzzies so he doesn't move forward either and in the middle of all of this russo shows up and has this meeting uh that was sort of unplanned but it's supposed to have it's happening on the same day that bush was supposed to meet with all the guys and he makes his own demands where he says i either want to release from my 21 remaining months on my contract or I want to stay on as a writer for the show, but not working underneath Kevin Sullivan or Gary Juster or JJ Dillon. Instead, I want to be put back as head of the writing position for nine months without any interruption or interference. And he was not at tapings the next week. Meanwhile, those four guys go set up a meeting in Connecticut and eventually they meet with Vincent ran and Jr and pretty much come to terms, but tell everybody to keep it quiet. And they don't tell their good friend, Shane Douglas, that they're doing this meeting. They sort of quote unquote, kayfabed Shane about all of this. And when Shane couldn't get anybody on the phone, he called the hotel that he knew the guys would stay at when they were meeting with Vince and Stanford. And sure enough, all four of his buddies are there at the hotel. Now
1: Ooh, that would that would sting, wouldn't it?
0: I think I mean, those would... guys probably assumed that Douglas may hurt their bargaining power. So they... Pretend like they're not, but then they did. And even Dean Malenko allegedly denied it to Shane Douglas. No, we weren't when they really were, but I understand it's a bad spot. Um, Douglas has gone on record as saying he was more hurt than pissed because he thought that they were a band of brothers. And they were all going to stick together. Of course, at the end of January, uh, January 31st, 2000, they're front row at raw and they become the radicals. So the revolution becomes the radicals, and now here they are on WWE TV, which I don't think anybody would have ever seen coming. And what a crazy well, story!
1: And like I said earlier, I, I I was sitting in Minnesota eating a cheeseburger with my wife at a Chili's restaurant, watching all that unfold on WWE TV, and it shocked the hell out of me. I couldn't believe it. To be honest, it was was mind-boggling.
0: Meanwhile, what's going on in the action right now is Terry Funk and Kevin Nash are having a battle. Uh, there's chairs, and uh, Funk is bleeding all over the place. And boom, delivering another shot to Kevin Nash with that chair. And, and they're they're battling to see who's going to be the commissioner of WCW. And given everything that we've gone over in real life, I don't know that anybody would even want the kayfabe job.
1: No shit, right? And I can't believe that Kevin's having this much trouble with Terry Funk because, you know, for the record, and I'd be remiss having, you know, if I didn't mention this, I beat Terry Funk for the hardcore championship of the world. So it's, it's mystifying to me that Kevin would be having so much trouble with him right now.
0: Let me just tell you, <laughs> that next time I see you, I'm going to kick you in the balls because not only did you beat Ric Flair at Starcade, but you also beat Terry Funk in a hardcore match, you motherfucker.
1: Challenge Vince McMahon, beat Shane McMahon. Fuck, my record is, you know, people make, you know, people laugh about my record in professional wrestling as a wrestler. But, you know, if you really look at it, you know, I beat some of the best at their own game. I beat Terry Funk in a, in a hardcore match for crying look out loud. Look
0: at that chair. Two serious chair shots to Terry Funk. The chair is all bent up and it's on Terry Funk's head.
1: You know, all kidding aside, because obviously I was kidding about what I was saying. Um, Terry Funk, I wish I would have gotten to know him better sooner. He was a really, really cool dude. And, you know, you talk about wrestling. And, again, you know, I've mentioned this before, how a lot of guys, you know, the older generations, guys, you know, of which I'm one now, evidently, um, he, he, you know, they always go back and talk about the highlights of their career and the matches that meant the most and the 60 minute broadways with Ric Flair and all that, And it's all legitimate. You know, they should be talking about that and they should be proud of it. But Terry Funk was one of those guys. When you talk to him, you know, he had, he had a very unique connection to the audience and the business. I really love talking to Terry Funk about the wrestling business, specifically about psychology. I, I really, now you wouldn't know that necessarily by looking at the types of matches that Terry was known for, you know, towards the end of his career, because they tended to be, you know, hardcore, bloody, vicious type of matches. But Terry had a really, really great instinct about the psychology of the business.
0: I want to mention here that uh, Meltzer would say this was a, a sad, one sided squash match. This is unbelievable to me what he wrote here. Funk, who worked that afternoon on a previously arranged booking in Marquette, Michigan on an indie show, wound up in trouble because of weather problems at the Cincinnati airport. And there was substantial fear he'd make it to the building in time for the match. How crazy is that? On this day, Terry Funk worked an indie show before this one.
1: Well, that shows you, you know, what Terry Funk was all about, number one. And I think that's a stand-up thing to do. He had a previous commitment, even though he was probably gonna make a big payday, uh, at least comparatively to to whatever he got on his indie show, and gonna be getting great T V time. Um, he lived up to his obligation. That's old school. He could have easily called that promoter and said, Look, I can't make it for whatever reason. But he didn't. And he did them both. It says a lot for Terry Funk and the way he came up in the industry. That being said, it also says a lot for WCW for agreeing to put a guy, you know, in a match like this on a pay-per-view when you know there's a, you know, 50, 50 chance that he may or may not be here. You know that going in, you know, he's previously booked, you know, he's going to make that commitment. You know, he's only got a matter of hours before he's going to go from there to you and the likelihood of something happening is pretty damn good. Uh, even in the best-case scenario, planes are late, planes get delayed, connections are missed, shit happens. Um, and to go ahead and, and book this guy in that match, knowing that, I, I think pretty much says all you need to know about you know the kind of thinking that was going on at the time.
0: I want to mention um, Meltzer would say – Terry put on as good a performance as would be humanly possible, but there comes a time when it gets really sad to see one of the great performers in history being portrayed as being unable to even garner offense in a match, which was supposedly his specialty to boot. Nash to him with a few chair shots and power bombed him through the announcer's table. Funk who bled on the indie show that afternoon bladed again, the fans booed Funk, which was no surprise based on the storyline portrayals of the characters to the modern audience. But Nash openly mocked Funk as a serious opponent from the beginning and didn't sell any of his offense or take bumps. With Funk left for dead, Nash said if the Funk could get in the ring, he'd let him stay commissioner. Funk crawled dead into the ring, and Nash said he lied and set up three chairs and power Funk through them for the pin. Don't kid yourself, Funk at fifty five, with all he's put his body through, feels every blow, every bit as bad as you can imagine. To his credit, though, he carried Nash to his best match in years, two and a half stars.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with it, but uh, those comments. But again, if we try to be objective and put yourself on the other side of that equation, first of all, the match should have never been booked, you know, for logistical reasons. Number one, and just from a creative point of view, and I mean. Absolutely no disrespect because I have mountains of respect for Terry Funk. But if you go back to 2000, just look at this situation. How does a guy who was as old as Terry was at 55, the size of Terry is broken down because of being through all the wars and battles as Terry had been. How do you possibly have an even exchange offense defense throughout the body of a match with a guy who in Kevin Nash, who is damn near seven foot tall, who's as wide as a fricking pickup truck, strong as an ox, almost a giant and relatively young. How do you have a believable match that the audience can? how do you have a match that where you would have a 50, 50 offense defense or maybe 60, 40, even for Kevin? And how do you do it in a believable way without hurting Kevin in the future? I mean, we saw Terry getting heat on on Kevin when I, you know, jokingly commented about how much difficulty Kevin was having with Terry. But from a storytelling point of view, if you're really producing television and not writing dirt sheets, how do you have a a good back and forth match with two characters that are such on opposite ends of the athletic spectrum, if you will? How do you do that?
0: I, I don't know. I do mortgages and whatnot.
1: not asking you i mean i mean i'm asking the theoretical you how would one do that how would one approach that and it's it's easy to rip this stuff apart but you know if you're doing it and i'm sure the thinking was you know terry Funk, he's terry Funk. it's a hardcore match and clearly you know hardcore itis had, had infested everybody's you know, thinking or thought process or creative process by this point. And if that's what they were embracing, then Terry Funk would be the, one of the guys you would want to, to bring into that, th- that story. But at the same time, you've got to, you've got to execute in the ring. And I'm, I'm just wondering how anybody would expect that you could possibly do that in a way that didn't ruin Kevin. Now, Can you imagine if we would have just watched the same match where Terry Funk was beating Kevin's brains out all over the building until the last minute, when Kevin rolled him up and schoolboyed him, or you know, pulled the finish out of his hat and power bombed him. You know, the first part of that match, with if, if Terry would have been just, you know, fifty-fifty offense, or really taking it to Kevin for an extended period of time, to the point where it looked like Terry Funk might actually win the match, had that match been laid out that way, no one would would have bought that. And and what's worse is Kevin. Where do you go with Kevin after that? If a fifty-five-year-old guy who's beat half to death, you know, <laughs> can can take it to a guy that's you know seven foot tall and three hundred and some odd pounds, well, that's seven hundred or that, that seven foot tall guy and three hundred pound guy isn't really that much of a badass. You know that's the other side of the challenge when you're writing and laying out matches like that when you mismatch characters as as badly as those two characters mismatch. I'll use the term again. It's just bad casting. Bad casting with a bad story has nothing to do with either one of the talents. Terry was a legend, still is and was entertaining as hell. No question about that. Kevin worked his guts out. Kevin worked hard for Terry. Terry made Kevin look good. Kevin made Terry look good within the context and structure of this match and story, the way it was laid out, but I don't know how you do it any other way. I really don't.
0: This match is only going to get two and three quarter stars that we're about to see Sid and Chris Benoit here. Sid is certainly the big star to these fans, much bigger pop and reaction for Sid, which I don't guess is all that surprising considering that he's main evented a couple of WrestleManias and several pay-per-views for them and michael buffer is going to give us our introduction your special referee for this is arn anderson arn cut a great promo beforehand after this match we're going to get another great promo maybe the best one that chris benoit ever did up to this point um and allegedly according to the rumor and innuendo kevin sullivan has said that sid was not happy doing the job for benoit but sullivan also knows that Benoit has one foot out the door. So just in case they have a contingency plan to get out of this finish and overturn it, so to speak. And allegedly that's enough to keep sad happy enough to do it. It is sort of funny. I don't know. Funny is the right word. Weird. Interesting that Arn Anderson is the referee here for this world title match with Sid, both of these guys being former horsemen, but I think everybody knows the trouble that Arne and Sid had once upon a time overseas, you got any Sid stories you can share with us? Uh, we just recently covered him this past week on Bruce Pritchard's something to wrestle podcast, but obviously we didn't spend a lot of time on his WCW tenure. What about you? What was your relationship like with Sid?
1: I had a great relationship with Sid. I mean, let's take, you know what people think of his character or what a great worker he was or wasn't in the ring and all the other things that people have talked about and written about over the years. I'm going to set all that aside and only talk about my interaction with him, interaction with him. And, um, when I became interested in signing Sid, cause I had heard all the stories and, you know, I always, I always took, Stories, secondhand, thirdhand stories with a grain of salt because I just know the nature of people in the wrestling business. So I, I never assign much credibility to anything I heard from anybody. Really, I kind of learned early on in my career, going back to before coming to WCW, actually, that you know the nature of wrestlers, especially and people in the business, is to you know they they have a hard time distinguishing between. Fiction and and fact, you know, real life and a work. So I, I kept, I'd listen to people and then I'd want to figure out a way to find out for myself. So when I became interested in signing Sid, um, I lived in Atlanta. He lived in Mississippi and I had my plane and I had any, give me one excuse to jump on my plane and fly back in the day. And I would do it. My, my goal was to build up my hours and get my commercial license and all that kind of stuff. I had my instrument rating. So I was really trying to build up as much time as I could. And oftentimes, uh, it was as cheap or cheaper for me to fly my own plane than it was to fly commercial. So in certain situations, I just do a cost analysis, and if I, you know, figured out how much gas I was going to burn, it would cost me four hundred dollars to fly my own plane instead of, you know, twelve hundred dollars or nine hundred dollars, or even if it was a, you know, equal thing, I would choose to fly my own plane. So I, I flew myself to Mississippi and and met with Sid at his home, and then we went out to eat, and I, you know he wasn't anything that I had heard. He he wasn't like anything. He wasn't anything like the stories I had heard about him. Let's put it that way. He was a gentleman. He was really straightforward and transparent. I didn't get the feeling I was being worked, uh, which was normally the case. You kind of have to read through the, between the lines and under the lines and, you know, take everything you'd hear from with a grain of salt, sometimes from talent. But I didn't get that impression from Sid. He was very straightforward. And throughout the time that I worked with Sid, whether it was finishes or any other issues um, I, I I enjoyed it I had no issues with Sid and to this day I see Sid you know out on the circuit and you know we get along great uh, we didn't have a lot of you know interaction it wasn't like Sid was there for a long time or was instrumental in a lot of the bigger things that I was doing while I was there so it wasn't like Sid and I you know, spent a lot of time together or had a lot of business together, but what business we did have and what communication I did have with Sid, I respected him, and still do.
0: You start Chossy. to see some of the wrestlers coming out from the back. Perry Saturn's out, David Flair's out. They're all going to be here to uh, watch this match and see who their new champion is going to be. Of course, Brent Hart has been stripped. And uh, Sid was in the main event all along, but Benoit is moving up here and getting his opportunity.
1: That whole device of having you know talent come out from the back and stand on the ape or stand on the stage and watch a match it just always, whenever I see that or anything like that, I just it screams bullshit to me. That wouldn't happen. It would never happen. It's not plausible. Talent's going to watch the ring. They'd have been watching it from backstage. That would have made this believable. That would have made me actually think that the talent cared. But having them come out where it's easy for the camera to pick them up, like they're all standing out on the stage because this is so important, is so devoid of plausibility that, eh, just I don't dig it. Especially when, you know, some of the again, no disrespect, but, you know, the first couple guys you see are Crowbar and David Flair. That screams significance to me.
0: Hey man, remember that time y'all threw the giant off the building and he came back and won the belt an hour later?
1: You learn a lot, you know, over a period of time. <laughs> yeah, I do. But that was that was a Halloween havoc. That was the theme was supernatural and 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 goblins and ghosts and shit like that. So it kind of made okay. Never mind.
0: <laughs> hey, let me ask. Uh, you know, nobody likes talking about Ben Wise persona non grata. For, for most wrestling fans and certainly for the wwe but um what was your relationship not what not, was it for me by the way well let's talk about that what was your relationship like with chris
1: it was respectful it it started out being very respectful i was completely blunt not not in a crude or or disrespectful way but when he and Eddie and Dean came to my office the very first time, I laid out exactly what my expectations were. I laid out exactly what I was going to be able to pay them. I I, I didn't try hard to sell them. Um, I was just as honest as I could possibly be. And, and they were as well. And I think that kind of set the tone for the majority of our relationship or our working relationship. Now, as time went on and <clears throat> things got more emotional and there was more frustration and they had issues with some of the things that were going on or they had issues with me, um, it, it got, you know, it, it got more typical, you know, to a, to a degree, especially with Eddie, not so much with Dean. Eddie was more or less the spokesperson for the three of them, at least when it came to me. Um, Chris was quiet. You know, Chris was that guy that would stand in the back and he was listening and he was thinking and he was making his own judgments about, you know, what he was hearing and seeing. But I never, you know, I never had a lot of confrontations with with Chris. He wasn't a confrontational guy. He, if he had an issue, he would come to you in a very or he would come to me. My experience, he would come to me in a very respectful, uh, almost subdued tone. And politely ask if there were time, you know, if I had time to address whatever he had an issue with and I would. And more often than not, it ended up in a positive way, you know, not not necessarily that I would, he would see things my way or I would see things his way, but our discourse was very professional and for the most part, constructive. And I, I enjoyed working with Chris. He was just so, I love people who are hyper professional, which Chris was. He was so professional. He was so good. He was a master of his art. He really, really was. He was extremely knowledgeable in psychology and understood the need for it and the value of it within the context of a match. Um, He, had the diversity to be able to be a big star in Japan, which is something that I had a ton of respect for because not a lot of Americans you could be a big star in the United States, but your stuff may not work in Japan if you can't adapt to that Japanese style. And Chris and Eddie and Dean <clears throat> had the ability to, to work both of those styles at the highest level. <clears throat> so I had a t- <clears throat> excuse me I had a ton of respect. For Chris and you know, I don't know if he respected me or he didn't, but at least he acted like he did, and it made our our process, no matter how difficult the subject matter, pretty easy. I I had a lot of respect for Chris. Obviously, you know, he he had issues that none of us knew about. Um, I feel horrible about it. It was a horrific thing the way it ended. We all know what it is. We don't need to beat it to death, but. Prior to that, I, I I held Chris in very high esteem.
0: Are you able to uh, to watch a, a Chris Benoit match like this and enjoy it, or is there some sort of I don't know? Are you uncomfortable about it?
1: No, I'm I, I don't have that problem, you know, and I I it's always odd. I'm not going to suggest that it's not because you can't put out of your mind just how bizarre and unfortunate you know his life ended as well as you know all the circumstances involved in it so I can't help but forget that or not forget that but at the same time I'm I look at these matches for what they are and what they were then I look at the psychology I look at the execution you know I, I look at this you know I break them down into I don't look at them I think like a normal wrestling fan would or, or a wrestling fan who's never been in the business. It's, it's like, I go to movies now and I, you know, I watch the movies because I try to understand the structure of the script. I look for the moments when the first act transitions into the second act. And sometimes I even time it because there's a certain amount of timing that has to take place in a typical one hour and 10 or one hour and 20 minute movie, which is what they normally are. So within that structure of a movie, you have to accomplish certain things and check certain boxes, typically in in the script of a movie. And I look at wrestling matches much the same way. You know, there is a formula, regardless of what anybody says. There's a formula in comedy. There's a formula in drama. There's a formula in wrestling. There's a formula in football. You know, there are formulas, there are structures, there are patterns. And I, when I watch wrestling, I watch it and break it down to see where a match either checked all the boxes and accomplished what should be in my opinion now uh, the body of a good match or whether they skipped around and it was act three and then act two and then act one or or maybe there were there maybe there was no act structure at all maybe there really was no story in a match which happens all too often but i when i watch it and and those things you know the, the sad way that chris's life ended and and, and everything that we all know about those things don't come into my mind when I'm watching a match like this. I'm really breaking it down kind of in terms of its execution. And when you do that, when you watch it, I mean, just the move right there where we saw, you know, Chris, you know, from the ground spin and, and take sit down. That looked so believable. It was so crisp. It was so real. There was nothing ever fake or implausible about a Chris Benoit match. Everything looked so believable, which to me is the highest compliment you can pay any talent. If, if you can watch a match like this. Now, I'm watching a guy who's my size. I mean, height, not my size, my, my height, at least, uh, in there with a guy as huge as Sid Vicious. And unlike, you know, the match we were talking about earlier with Kevin Nash and, and um, Terry Funk, You know, even though there was a huge size and age discrepancy, here you've got a size discrepancy. But I'm believing this. I'm allowing myself to believe it primarily because of Chris. Taking nothing away from Sid, big scoop slam right there, looked very believable. But Chris made this match. I mean, to me, the... If this wasn't the best match Sid has ever had, it has to be one of the top five.
0: It is his best match since his match with Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series 96. So over three years since his last match, that was to this level. I probably prefer just because of the heat of the crowd in Madison Square Garden. I probably prefer the Survivor Series match to this one, but this is probably a second best match ever.
1: And, and that's much of that credit has to go to Chris Benoit. Of course. So regardless of how horrible his life ended and the damage that he did and he did, I'm not minimizing that by any any stretch. But they're two separate things. If you're talking about just technical ability and his master mastery of the art form of this this industry that we all love. We all dig it. We're talking about it. I still get passionate about it. I'm getting really excited right now looking at some of the the promos uh, both on the show in WWE as well as in social media, I really feel like WWE right now is going back to a much more believable, plausible, edgy, direct um, kind of presentation in their promos and their communication between talent, and I'm really excited about it. So I I still have a love for this this genre, you know, that we know is now as sports entertainment. Uh, it's harder to lose that. But when I see a match like this and I see a performance like this with Chris Benoit, you know, I, I separate it from, you know, what we know happened. I mean, there's a lot of people, you look at a lot of actors and actresses and musicians and, you know, sure. They were, they were flawed and they hurt a lot of people or other people. And they, they may have ended their lives prematurely by doing horrible things to themselves and maybe others too, but you can't take away from what they achieved as artists. And that's, That's how I look at Chris Benoit's matches.
0: Look at that kick out.
1: The kick out. I mean, I was trying to think, how do I, how do I even react to that? I mean, Sid looked like he, he threw a six-year-old off the top of him. I mean, and that was
0: believable, you know? Here comes the finish right here. All
1: right. Let's gear up for this. I can't wait to see this. Arn Anderson pulling out what's left of his hair.
0: Giant choke slam from Sid. But Benoit gets the foot under the ropes,
1: Arne and Sid says, "Arn, cut it out." Oh my! Come on! I had to. I've been waiting all. I mean, as soon as I saw them coming together, and I saw Arn as the referee, I'm thinking, "Okay, when am I going to throw in the cut it out line?" <laughs>
0: And there yes. there you go. Crippler crossface applied to Sid. And before it's all the way even locked in, Sid's tapping out. But Sid is meanwhile kicking the bottom rope. Arn Anderson does not see that. Your new world champion. There's the big gold belt. The Clearly, from-
1: Arn Anderson is a referee, still harboring ill will, and stuck it to Sid Vicious by not seeing the foot under the rope.
0: A little bit of trash coming in for the finish which is interesting.
1: Yeah, I don't get that. I would I would have suspected that the the crowd would have really gotten behind Chris. But again, this is early in, you know, Chris's, you know, 2 years before this, he was a cruiserweight guy, you know, middle of the middle of the show on Nitro, you know, kind of a a crossover segment, you know, didn't have a lot of camera time, or didn't, didn't have a lot of interview time, didn't have a lot of real big story. Um Main event type story. So, uh, other than the obviously the Nancy Sullivan thing, which is more of a subplot, if you will. Um, so, I guess it's not unusual to see a guy who had not been featured as a main eventer not get a big reaction, especially if he didn't have a lot of story and build up that resonated leading up to this match.
0: So there he is and, with the and world title. Of course, title.
1: all those all of the talent that came out because it was so important, and this is me being critical as a producer, so important that they come out and express interest in this match, had zero reaction at the end of it. Bizarre.
0: Yeah, it is weird. Like, if they're there, the celebrators win. Wouldn't they jump in there like Starcade 97 and put them up on the shoulders and let's do a big ticker tape thing? And
1: I mean, they all stood there looking like they were waiting for the lady in catering to dish up their fucking sloppy joes. Why even be out there? I mean, literally, look at the looks on their faces. If we get another shot, they're standing there literally looking like they're waiting to be served a hamburger.
0: There's the finish. Sid tapping immediately, but kicking that rope, making sure that we can see it. Oh at no, home. we got
1: a little reaction. Yeah, it gets a, a reaction. But it's Glenn's got his back turned talking to disco.
0: <laughs> Meltzer would say the uh, crowd reaction was disappointing, but that Benoit's promo afterwards really made up for it. What a, a weird tumultuous time in the company. Uh, we got a shot here of today Shivani and Heenan. what do you think of that trio?
1: I always liked him. You know, I, I, I probably have given the impression over the years that I didn't really enjoy today. Cause I would, I would call him out on certain things when we worked together in TNA. I had a real hard time with him. I, I was trying to convince Dixie, um, That he needed to be replaced and had worked. Um, I'm trying to facilitate that a couple different times. But it's not because I didn't think that Mike Teney had a very, very, very valuable role as a part of an announced team. I just don't think play by play was his call. That wasn't his strength. He he was a color guy. Mike Teney had more information, more knowledge, more facts that he could tap into to help add color or support to a story than anybody that I knew in the industry. And when he was in a color position where he was that guy, he was that statistician, you know, in major league baseball or the, even in the NFL that just knew all of that information that helped tie story together and add depth or color to it. I think he was as good or better than anybody could be. But the mistake was he was, you know he ended up in a play by play position and he didn't have the personality for that he didn't have the emotion for that he didn't you know tony Schiavone is is dry and kind of straightforward as tony could be tony also had the uh, the instinct to know when to let his emotion kind of take over and by doing that made whatever he was calling feel more important mike tonight didn't have that And you need that in a play-by-play position. But when I look back at this now, I think that Tanae was exactly in the role that he should have been in, as was Tony, as was Bobby. I think it hurt Bobby a little bit not to have a Gene Oakland or a Jesse Ventura or another big personality that he could fuck with. you know, Or Dusty Rhodes, for example. Dusty and Bobby used to have some amazingly fun and entertaining commentary when we needed it you know, when there was a lull in the action or when we're transitioning from, you know, a backstage segment to, you know, an introduction, you'd have those 15 or 20 second, sometimes longer periods of time where you need your personalities at the broadcast booth to keep the audience entertained. And I think with today and, and and Bobby, because of the nature of their personalities, um, we, we didn't have that, but I, you know, obviously Bobby's Bobby. There's never going to be another Bobby here. there's never going to be another Gene Oakland ever, ever, ever. But, you know, I think, I think today was in a great role. Bobby was the best that there ever will be in his position. And Tony was, Tony was so, so T- Tony was so solid and dependable. And I think the audience trusted Tony because he never went too extreme. He never called ridiculous. He never, never tried to make ridiculous shit look believable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he did, but he was forced to, but he still had credibility with the audience. And I thought they were a great team.
0: They were a great team. And hopefully you guys at home think that we were a great team this week on 83 weeks. If you haven't already go follow us on social media at 83 weeks on Twitter. He is at a Bischoff. I am a Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.